Dale, Chamberlain of All Ages, and Walter Payne Radio presents the greatest podcast in the world, The Marketech Samuel Plan, The Devil's Advocate Shinobi, The Lunatic King Maverick, and Single Syllable Mother, The Right Side of the Pond. And of course, if you're not down with that, we got two words for you! Lords of Pain and welcome to the right side of the pond. It is Friday and we're joined today by a very, very special guest. So you just heard Plan, who is not the special guest. No, in <laughs> fact, we have found a real LOP superstar for you. It is the return of the Doc, Chad Matthews. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well, thank you, and I appreciate you guys having me on the show. That's our pleasure. Um, so, you know, we thought it was a good idea to get Doc on. We've you know, not heard from an LAP radio very much recently. He did appear on uh, on Plan's uh, side podcast, Sports Entertainment is Dead, to talk about sports entertainment versus performance art. Um, but in terms of sort of current stuff that's going on, um, you know, we've still got Doc's Twitter page and Facebook page, so we kind of know his opinions on things. But it's good to to get him in here and actually kind of have a real detailed chat. So, Doc, I think what Plan and I were interested in knowing was, um, you know, how you've been getting along with this sort of uh, more inverted commas casual watching of the product and whether that's kind of improved your outlook on it and what you think about this so-called new era so far. I think it's been incredibly refreshing for my fandom in general. I think I'd gotten to a point where I hadn't stopped watching in a long time. You know, as you guys know, doing weekly podcasts, there's sort of a general commitment that you're making to the product. And given that my podcast was pretty much all WWE-centered, I hadn't taken a real break from the product in several years, and I needed it. I needed to step away from looking at it from an analytical perspective i needed to step away from it from the standpoint of you know getting a lot of feedback on how everybody else felt since everybody else felt so largely negative about it so often it was kind of hard to find anything enjoyable about that experience anymore so i i needed it very badly to step away it's been very good i've sort of refreshed the way that i watched the product and I don't really pay a lot of attention outside of uh, a few podcasts, uh, this one, and, and Sports Entertainment is Dead included, uh, that really offer much of, in the way of opinion on it. So I've gotten away from a lot of the, the, the grind and the negativity of it. So it's been refreshing. And I think, you know, concurrently along those lines, you know, I, I stepped away at a time where Brock stepped back into the spotlight, where... Baron Corbin rose to prominence on Raw. I missed a lot of that. Didn't see it. Didn't care. Just kind of ignored most of that. Um, but I thought the Royal Rumble card was really good. So I really dove back into paying a lot more attention to the product. But I think probably the best thing about stepping away from the week-to-week grind, so to speak, was being able to catch up on some stuff that I hadn't seen, that I wanted to watch, and... You know, I think watching other products has, has helped me better appreciate what WWE is and what it intends to be. So, you know, that doesn't necessarily always speak to a top-notch quality from them. But, 
you know, just stepping away has helped me see the things I liked and concentrate on the things that I liked and not focus so much on the things that they're not doing right, in my opinion. That's interesting. So, I mean, I know you you kind of checked out a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff from NJPW um, and, and some of the indie stuff. So was there anything from there that you, you felt like WWE should should be adopting, like methodologically speaking? I think in terms of New Japan's products, especially what I gathered out of New Japan was it, it felt match to match, especially with some of the bigger stuff that they do like the, the G1 Climax, there's such a focus on winning um, that, you know, I feel like right now WWE is in this place where you could get the biggest win of your career today and then lose tomorrow by tap out and no big deal be made out of either. And and that's, to me, that's, that's not a good thing for a wrestling product. It's not sport, as, as Plan will emphasize, but it's also not not sport you know i mean there's very there's a lot of athleticism and and sport related elements to it that are inescapable it's part of the inherent storytelling is the 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 intent of winning and and the defeat being something that can lead you down a different path and i think that's largely gone missing in the in this day and age in wwe and it's something that new japan really does get right no matter what you feel about the in-ring style and there were things that I loved about what I saw and there were things that I didn't necessarily get that a lot of people do love about that style but the one inherent thing that is great about New Japan Pro Wrestling is that if you win it matters and if you lose it matters and that matters to me and I think I'd forgotten how much that mattered to me by spending most of my time watching a product that sort of has very heavily de-emphasized the 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 greatness of, of victory and the agony of defeat. Plan, let's bring you in here because obviously um, there's an interesting point Doc makes about how NJPW, you know, sort of can build people through uh, through a series of victories and, and sort of making inverted commas wins and loss matter. Um, I mean, what do you what do you feel about that in terms of in terms of WWE? I mean, I know I know that you're going to kind of have a slightly different angle on it, but do you think that's something that matters? Well, wins and losses. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, of course. Even if the thing is, even if you, <clears throat> even if you don't see any kind of, um, well, let me rephrase that. Even if you approach WWE the way I do, where you, you sort of are looking at the the fictional side of it and the the merits of the story more than and character more than anything else, you know, wins and losses still matter because in the medium of professional wrestling, they determine the outcome of the narrative, right? That's you know, because in any story, whether it's doesn't matter what medium you're telling it in, there's a winner and a loser at the end of the at the end of the story. You know, typically the guys always win in in fiction, right? But um, you need. I've long said that to me, you know, like you say, I come of it come of it, come at it slightly differently, but I I still care about who wins and loses because it has to feel like it's justified by the narrative that precedes the decision. So you know, take an example. I mean, Doc. Basically, what what he just said summed up Seth Rollins 2017, you know, because he beats Triple H uh, at, at WrestleMania, biggest win of his career. Absolutely nothing's made of it and then loses to Bray Wyatt twice in a row in the summer and nothing's made of it. And then he's teaming up with Dean Ambrose, you know, so it's it's and look at how that sort of in the eyes of a lot of people stalled his his upward momentum, stalled his, his career. And then like 
what, 18 months later, WWE go, oh, didn't he beat Triple H that time at WrestleMania? You think maybe we should we should maybe make something out of that? Um, but if that WrestleMania match had ended with Triple H winning, then that's a, that's an, an ending that doesn't make any sense in terms of, you know, it's not emotionally justified by the story that had been told running up to it. And WWE's not very good at writing stories, quite frankly. Uh, and that can happen, you know, more times than not, is that you get a, you get a winner at the end of it. I mean, case in point, the AJ Styles... Samoa Joe uh, feud that you and I were both, you know, huge proponents of getting the championship on on Samoa Joe at the time because it seemed to be that Samoa Joe was so into, you know, so underneath AJ Styles' skin, he was so in AJ Styles' head, uh, he had such a, an insurmountable advantage that for AJ Styles to just basically turn around and win three times in a row, kind of it, it didn't it didn't feel emotionally satisfying at the end of the story. So I do come at it from a different perspective than, than doctors quite obviously, you know, I mean, there's a reason my podcast is called sports, sports entertainment is dead, but uh, they do absolutely still matter because you're talking about the outcome of a story ultimately. And of course the outcome of a story matters. And you know, what really strikes me is Pete Dunne and his run uh, with the UK championship, which isn't to say that I think all championship reigns, uh, need to be 500, 600 days long, like far from it. I mean, I actually quite enjoy a, a good hot potato from time to time, as as we discussed with Samoa Joe and AJ Styles. But what Pete Dunne's run with that belt has shown is that if you have, you know, like a, a fighting champion who takes on all comers, um, has a competitive match against absolutely everybody, you know, like, you know, maybe unlike sort of the Brock Lesnar version of the trope, um, and, you know, makes... The person who wins that belt from him matter a million times more because whoever knocks off Pete Dunne for that championship, you know, is going to be on that brand a massive deal. Like whoever they build up to do it, whether it's, you know, whether it's Devlin or whether it's, you know, uh, Joe Coffey or whoever it is, they decide to put that belt on it. You know, it, and I suppose you and I have said before, kind of, right? It isn't conkers, right? You don't, you don't it's automatically, terrible. yeah, you don't automatically get like all, 20 odd people or something that Pete Dunne has, has defended that championship against. <laughs> but what you do get is, is the feather in your cap of having defeated somebody who was extremely dominant for a stretch of time. And so, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, another, another example of, of a more traditional uh, point of view that I guess, you know, more, more on doc side of stuff than mine is again, to go back to my, my guy, Seth, you know, Look at what accruing exactly what you were just talking about, Mav. When he won that Intercontinental Championship, he took on, you know, he had a ridiculous number of opponents before he dropped the title to, to Ziggler for a short while. The only reason why that all built up to what it built up to for him was because he kept getting out these big wins consistently in great matches over people. So there's, you know, brilliant contemporary case in point, as well as Pete Dunne. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think, I think you know, with WWE, you always have to... You know, you always have to kind of look at, uh, at what they're doing well and then what they're not doing so well and, and, and kind of try and balance out where you are in terms of the historical era. And I think, I mean, Doc, do you think that we are kind of coming out of that extremely dark period now where, you know, there was just so much mediocrity and so much kind of sloppy writing and you know and, and a lot of tv that just didn't seem to matter i mean just you said you plugged back in for rumble season you know did you notice a change do you think that there is you know the, the the words new era just a slogan or do you think there's some some value to it i think that remains to be seen <laughs> you know i would love to say yes 
but I've been waiting for a while for it. And I didn't necessarily see a lot um, during Rumble season that, that made me feel confident that WWE is moving out of that period yet. I think a lot of it, as it usually does for me, uh, hinges on what they end up doing at WrestleMania. I think that there are some narratives that they can 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 draw from that are going to be very emotional for fans like us who are just sick to death of this part-timer era, uh, especially at shows like WrestleMania. I, I hope that they draw from that in the build-up to Seth versus Brock, even though uh, they tried it last year with Roman and Brock, laughably, considering who was narrating that our side of it was a guy who was very much considered a chosen one, uh, that being Roman Reigns. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, well, I don't, can, can, do you guys feel like that they are? Cause I think it's hard to, to call that at this point in time, there's a lot of real estate to cover between now and I guess what, 10 weeks from now when WrestleMania happens, it feels like we're, we're inching toward it but that it seems at the same time still so far away. I don't think that Raw has figured out very well how to fill its three hours yet. I hate what they're doing with the tag team division. I think that's terrible. That's remained terrible since I stepped away. I don't give a, a flying crap about uh, about Bobby Lashley still. <laughs> there's, just, there's some interesting people being positioned, especially on Raw, in very prominent places. And you could flip that over to SmackDown and, and look at Shane McMahon and his role as, you know, there's just some still some things that when you've got such a wealth of talent, you know, you've got uh, this very concerted effort to push a Bobby Lashley. But as I'm sure we'll get to later, uh, the, the, continued, the, the continued struggle to find the the right way to utilize Dean Ambrose has bit them in the butt and we're going to lose one of the, one of the top stars uh, of this generation because of it. So, I mean, there are some good things going on. I loved the, the way they built the Royal rumble card. I thought this is what a WrestleMania should look like in terms of uh, the way that it, the way I think of that show being, this is what a WrestleMania should be. It should feature big matchups that people want to see prominent characters clashing that's what you want. Um, I don't know that I'm ready to say that I feel like they're getting out of their their bad habits, though. I think that they are showing flashes. Now I need to see some consistency, bottom line. Well, that's that's the thing, isn't it? And, and it's almost a moot point as to whether they are or not. I think the point is that they, it, has, it has to be now. It has to be now because, you know, if it's not going to be now, then when's it going to be? You know, I've spoken in the past on this show and on other shows about... Um, the 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 fate of circumstance and how often that can be what facilitates you know the huge shifts in change in 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 pro wrestling's history and wwe's history just through a culmination of of a number of different coincidences and that's what's happening in front of our very eyes right now between roman having to step away brock lesnar having one foot constantly out of the door at this point we're told that at the minute, The Undertaker isn't booked for WrestleMania. Triple H is injured. Uh, Angle obviously can't really go. You've got um, you know AEW cropping up. And more importantly than that, I've just actually posted my King the Columnist's tournament column on this very subject in LOP forums as of recording today. You know the, the thing with AEW, and I tweeted about this the other day, it's not just that you've got this rival promotion coming up because we've seen that a thousand times before. 
It's that you've got this this rival promotion that only exists because from what we understand, you have guys like the Young Bucks, probably Kenny Omega as well, turning down unprecedented contracts from WWE, huge money contracts, to go and do their own thing, which has basically created and, and validated a mindset that says, you know, you obviously you need to make enough money to, to live comfortably, but at the same time, uh, an environment that is creatively fulfilling for you is just as important, and it's okay to prioritize that as well. I mean, I was very cynical when when guys like the Young Bucks would say that they, you know, they wouldn't just go to WWE for the money. I sort of thought, well, you know, money talks, and it turns out actually they were men of their words, and I, I hugely respect that. And what's happened is it's kind of caught fire, hasn't it? I mean, the revival we're told have been saying that they wanted out of their contract. Dean Ambrose doesn't want to re-sign because even though he was offered what we're told was a seven-figure sum. He's not getting the kind of the creative fulfillment that he needs in WWE. We've had Hideo Itami, who's recently just decided that he's he's leaving the company. It's catching, you know, these things can catch like wildfire. So between all of these myriad circumstances, we've, we're at a point where regardless of whether WWE want to or not, they're going to have to start accepting that something in the company and something to the status quo has to change because otherwise they are going to be in very serious trouble. They've got a stacked roster at the minute like a, a ridiculously sized roster that needs trimming down so in a way this is probably going to benefit them a little bit but um you know they could very easily turn around and find that everyone's flitting out the door because because they'd rather go in and work somewhere where they know that they're uh, they're going to get the creative performance that they don't get so what needs to happen in wwe is it goes beyond just booking part-timers i mean that's a huge huge issue it has been for many years i'm at zero i've been at zero tolerance for it for a long time but it, it it's everything you know the the whole creative culture in wwe that has been dictated now for so long by a vince mcmahon who's been able to have his cake and eat it at every turn you know is being challenged and that's a good thing it's an exciting thing and i say that even as even as a you know wwe guy through and through and vince has to to face up to the fact that you know he's got he can't control everything. It's not good enough to be scripting people's promos. It's not good enough to be, you know, to be doing this. The people refer to as 50-50 booking all the time and stuff. And he needs to. It reminds me. I think I've said this before. It reminds me of that segment in the invasion when he's out there pleading for Steve Austin to you know we need the old Stone Cold. We need the old Vince McMahon back. He was prepared to take a gamble and not be so craven and, and, and frightened of taking a risk on something, you know, because everything in WWE has become so homogenized and so formulaic, you know, even down to, to the shape of WrestleMania, you know, exactly what, you know, the pieces may change, but you know exactly what WrestleMania is going to look like. Um, and you, you go back to the formative years and it was, it, you know, I mean, you know, year one, it was, it was obviously a brand new thing. Year two, they did it from three arenas. Year three, they sold out a 93,000 seat stadium. The year four, they did a tournament, you know, it was constantly, they were constantly experiments. I'm not saying that's what they need to do now, but the point is they need to basically, for lack of a bit more elegant expression, loosen the fuck up a bit. Yeah, I think, oh yeah, it's what my, my weekly column is about this week is, is creative control and the fact that they have just systematically taken all creativity out of professional wrestling, you know, and you'll get the odd exception here and there, like, you know, a guy like CM Punk who 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 broke through and was allowed to to be himself and to do his own thing to a large degree. And you know, you'll have you'll have now and again them loosed up and give somebody you know creative freedom. And it, it's no surprise that somebody like Dean Ambrose is is standing up and saying, you know, I'm 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 fed up of, of being told to memorize these terrible promos. I'm fed up of 
you know, of, of having these storylines that don't make any sense and, and just kind of seem to be a, a different feud every week. Uh, and that's been a problem with WWE for a really, really long time. And as you say, I mean, even down to the matches, actually, how many matches in WWE, truthfully, over the past, certainly over the past two years, could you say, were really that different from each other? I mean, I remember sitting there, um, you know, at Christmas when everybody was doing their end of year matches lists and thinking, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to write one this year. I, I don't think I watched that many matches last year that stood out to me. As, as being a different to any others. Um, and I think, I mean, I am, a, I am a little bit optimistic about the way they've done things since. So am I. Uh, since they, they kind of, um, yeah, sort of, I guess they did that really clumsy thing where they came out and said, hey, it's a new era, um, which was a, a bit kind of eye rolling. But actually, you know, the fact that someone like a real favourite of mine, like Mustafa Ali, has got a real spotlight um, you know, the fact that they're kind of giving Samoa Joe back his teeth, the fact that, um, you know, they're, they're just, they're starting to make TV watchable again. And as Doc says, I think Raw is still by far the inferior show and still the three hours is a, a complete backbreaker for it. Um, but there's small signs. I think that the treatment of Finn Balor and the um, weeks before the Royal Rumble was a massive step forward. And indeed, we'll get onto it shortly i suppose but but his match with brock lesnar was a massive step forward for brock lesnar matches because the, the 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 real issue now though is that they've gone so far and they've they've wasted so many years and they've obsessed over this formula they've developed with part-times and stuff for so long um that small small signs aren't enough anymore yeah. and that's yeah. why guys like dean ambrose are walking away because they need to be making big gestures you know it's not enough to say okay well we'll push a guy like Seth Rollins to the main event of, of WrestleMania because he's a popular guy. Um, but at the same time, we're going to have Shane McMahon as a tag team champion. Like, no, you, it's like you don't get to compromise anymore. You, you have to give the fans and, and give the, your talents the spotlight because what's essentially been proven that we've known all along, uh, that certainly, Mav, you and I have, have spoken about, certainly I've ranted about many times on the pond, uh, is that this myth that WWE have peddled now for like what five ten years that no talents these days want it anymore no one's will no one's hungry enough anymore no one wants to grab the brass ring anymore and that's why they don't get that it was that they're just hollow words that it's just bullshit and and that's what's being proved now because if they didn't want it they'd be sticking around like Dolph Ziggler has for all these years eating the crap that they're being given to do but would revival turn around saying actually you're not good enough for us we want to we want to move Dean Ambrose is saying don't matter how much money you want to throw at me you know the fact is that your writing's crap and I need a better product to sink my teeth into um, and that's the sign of that's the sign of a, of a generation of talent, you know, which is something the preceding generation never did. I mean, granted, maybe that they, they didn't have an opportunity to. But the the point is that this is that WWE. If WWE believe the the narrative they've peddled about this generation of talent, um, then they're then frankly they're moronic, you know, and and they're about to get as you said earlier, Doc, they're about to get severe because Dean Ambrose leaving that's a huge huge deal. And I know that fans like a lot of fans like to talk down Dean Ambrose's contributions and talk down his talent and all the rest of it. And it's all I find it all to be a bit nonsensical. But uh, he's he is one of the most preeminent names of his of his generation. So him walk to walk out the door is a huge deal. I don't want to be too negative about the the product right now because I think largely, I mean, the reason why I wanted to be on the show was because I have been largely re-energized toward it but 
couple of quick points that I want to make. I think you talk about grand gestures. Um, the, the grandest gesture that WWE needs to make is to basically strip down the formula that they have created over the years and and revamp it to a point where there's real change involved. Because essentially what it's like in a situation like Dean Ambrose is you've got, you look over on SmackDown and you've got Daniel Bryan being an authentic version of himself every week, being given a platform to say what he wants to say fully in character in a way that you can fully believe that he has bought into. He's that old classic thought process of taking your real self and just dialing it up to 10. I never really got the sense in watching Ambrose and his promos after he turned heel in particular, I never really got the sense that this was a guy who fully believed in the material that he was given, didn't fully believe in what he was doing. Cause there was, there was just something about it that just didn't click to me. And I think it, it authentic, authenticity is the word. So it's almost become with WWE and its talents. And certainly it's become for WWE and a lot of fans like ourselves. It's, it's like, we've been in this relationship with the WWE for a very long time. And, and every time we, we thought, okay, I'm, I'm ready to leave this relationship. They would throw something big at us. Like, like, a, like a husband would buy a wife, a, a big gaudy diamond necklace that she might really love. And it's like, Oh, okay. Well he does care. And then, but there's been so many of those instances where nothing then changes underneath the surface that really is what forms the bonds of our fan to promotion or wrestler to promotion in the case of Ambrose relationships. And now it really needs to come down to giving these guys the platform to do what they do best, to go out and showcase the talent that they, that they have to the fullest extent of their abilities. And that's when you look at what Cody and the Bucks and guys like Kenny Omega are doing, they want the opportunity to go as Kenny Omega is prone to say, you know, express his art. That's what they want. They want that opportunity. And if they can make, if they can make a really good living and be more creatively fulfilled, well, now that opportunity exists for these guys that have been creatively stifled for WWE. And it's in a hugely positive development, but I'm very, very curious to see, on the WWE side of it. And this is why I'm really curious to see if this is just hollow, this talk of a new era, or if we're really heading in that direction is WWE has largely been a company that has made decisions creatively for the better of their product as a result, not of declining quality, but in terms of declining revenue. And that's not yet a place where they're taking a hit you know, if they lose Dean Ambrose, they'll replace Dean Ambrose. And if the bottom line doesn't change, I'm curious to see if Vince McMahon does anything different, because we're talking about a company that just a few months ago got a billion dollars for a television show that has had sinking ratings for a long time. And yeah, it gets great YouTube hits, but that doesn't necessarily translate to television viewing. So there's this formula that's just been totally blown up that we all sort of learned to 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 kind of understand all right from a business standpoint this is why they do what they do i think until they take a big business hit then my question is going to be what's vince mcmahon's motivation to do anything really differently and i guess we'll find out in due time whether or not they really give a crap about 
the creative part. If they desire to have a better product, you hope that they do, but well, the, you know, the, you just I mean, don't know the, until the they do it. The immensely frustrating thing about that is, and I think you're banging on, Doc, but is that, you know, if it's not like they're going to stop landing billion-dollar TV deals if they if they allow more creative freedom in the products, right? It's not like it's, and I know that's not what you're saying, but you know, sort of, if if you were talking to Vince McMahon, it's like, you know, what are you so afraid of happening if you just let a guy, if you give a guy bullet points, let him go out and cut cut his own promo, you know, like. How is that going to suddenly destroy your company financially from the inside out? It's it's obviously not. If anything, it's probably only going to improve the quality, which is likely only going to improve your TV ratings, which is likely only going to improve the kind of deals that you can land. Like they're just, they're, I, I struggle to understand any kind of logic that prevents um, wrestlers from 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 being able to have more creative input into what they're doing. Because, you know, ultimately, I'm willing to bet there isn't a a single prominent professional wrestler on the planet who decided to become a professional wrestler because he wanted to get rich. You know, they do it because they love the art form of it. And so what's going to be interesting, that's why I say the biggest threat is the mindset that the, that the creation of AEW seems to, to uh, validate. Um, and because ultimately if, if WWE start losing hemorrhaging talent because they go elsewhere for more creative, you know, more, more, more creatively fulfilling thing, then, a wrestling company is only as good as the talent it's built on, right? So, you know, I can't imagine they're going to be doing very well if, if Mojo Rawley and Jinder Mahal are headlining pay-per-views for WWE Championship matches. And, of course, I'm not saying it's going to get to that. But um, the point that I'm trying to sort of drive home is that they've got nothing to lose by, by putting some faith and some trust in these incredibly – in what I continue to maintain – is the most talented generation of, of professional wrestlers I can ever remember seeing collected in one place before. Well, one thing I think that is very, very positive about the product that I see right now, and I mentioned this on Twitter the other day, I said that I really missed the days because I, I was watching some, some old CM Punk, Daniel Bryan, John Cena stuff. I really missed from that from the quote unquote reality era the the idea of just you've got these two people in the ring that represent very different things that look at the world very different ways that have very different backgrounds and they come together and they have a promo segment where what they say builds conflict off the back of those inherent differences. You loved that, right? When you had it with Punk and Cena, when Brian and Punk and, or excuse me, Brian and Cena would do it or Brian and the Authority would do it. It was just, it was magic. I feel like we're seeing that in very limited instances, but we're seeing it with, you know, Daniel Bryan is going to have someone who steps up and encounters what he's saying, uh, or at least with the manner in which he says it. At some point, someone's going to, and it's going to be magic. But we're seeing that magic already come to the forefront with Becky Lynch and Ronda Rousey, who've got this great sort of dichotomy between them. And, and that's that, to me, is is that's a lot of the hope is actually from the women's division. Because, I mean, I, I think the women were the reason why, outside of Seth Rollins winning the Royal Rumble on Sunday, I mean, they were the reason why, I was so excited about the Royal Rumble going into it and coming out of it. I think it's worth just before you jump in again, Mav, um, also saying that, you know, again, in the in the uh, in the interest of being a bit more positive here. Um, and I don't know how much uh, truth there is to it or not, or if I'm just imagining things or not. But 
you know, I've been I've been I've been saying this for a couple of weeks now that as I've watched, you know, the parts of Raw and SmackDown that I've been watching, when people have been cutting promos, they have felt more indiv- indiv- individual. They felt less uh, homogenized, and it feel I I felt like I've you know, I was. It felt like I was hearing Seth Rollins' voice on on Monday, and not something that got written for him. And it felt like, you know, the week before that, I was hearing Braun Strowman's voice. It felt very much like I was hearing Samoa Joe's voice when he just laid waste to everybody in the ring on SmackDown this last week. I can't imagine that got got written for him either. That or his delivery is now so off the chart that it's impossible to tell. So, you know, again, I don't know if there's actually anything to that or not, but I do hope that maybe what I've felt I've seen on TV is reflective of a company that maybe is starting to to see what Ronda Rousey, I mean, you know, her problems aren't for everyone, but, you know, they've, they've always garnered some kind of a reaction. So to see what she can do if she's, you know, given a bit more freedom, we'll see, especially Daniel Bryan, who has, you know, really reached a, a, another level again and, and feels very much like he's he's had at least some degree of creative freedom over what he's been able to say on a, on a microphone. So, you know, that's, that's, Along, as you say, Doc, along with what's happening with the women, and certainly with with Seth winning the Rumble for me, that's that's been encourage, an encouraging sign to me as well. And I hope that maybe over the course of this road to WrestleMania, which by the way I thought got off to a rollicking great start this week, yeah. um, uh, uh, you know, I hope that that pans out and it only sort of gathers a bit more steam and momentum as we head towards April. There's a long time before WrestleMania this year. I mean, it's an it's an interesting time. I feel like I, I feel like. What you've just pointed out, Plan, I, I think, you know, that's what's really in, encouraged me about this inverted commas new era is that fact that, you know, you're getting people like Samoa Joe cutting very natural promos. You're getting people like Mustafa Ali, like, you know, and, and Andrade getting a genuine, you know, a genuine shine as as kind of newer competitors and, and getting to have these these barnstorming TV matches and, and building themselves a reputation in quite an old school manner which you know befits the type of wrestlers they are and the type of characters they are um and, and as you say you know they've treated for the, i think really for the first time like i, I know you, you you could go back and debate like when the women were taken seriously or not and the course of this evolution revolution whatever you want to call it i think really now for the first time it feels like they really are as big a deal as the men and i think that's an incredibly encouraging prospect um, so I think the problem for me isn't that there aren't green shoots to be optimistic about. It's that WWE's habit over the years has been um, to, to lull you into this full sense of security um, and then sort of whip the carpet away and, and you'll be left like sprawling on your backside because you started to believe they were changing things around a bit. And then it's suddenly, you know, back to the status quo. And that's what they need to avoid this time for, for me. Um, but let's get into the um, into the, the, the rumble a little bit. Um, where do we want to start? We'll start. I mean, we talk, we talk about the women. So I think, you know, if we if we start there. So um, you have a Becky Lynch uh, one night story we're big fans of one night stories in the pond and of course planet's one that we suspected last week um might take place we avoided predicting it because it's a long-standing pond prediction <laughs> uh, to uh, predict things that aren't really going to happen so uh we did avoid it but it was something which i think you know everybody understood was possibility that she would have the i don't know what you'd want to call it whether you want to call it the bret hart wrestlemania 10 or whether you'd want to call it um whether you'd want to kind of call it the uh it's I, what I well the, what I described it as on sports entertainment this week 
it is the 2014 we never got. Yes, the sort of yeah. what, what people thought might happen with Daniel Bryan. Yeah, absolutely. So it was something which 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 kind of seemed fairly predictable, but it was it was well executed enough. So I mean, first of all, what, what did we make of the match with Asuka? Really enjoyed it. It was good, solid stuff. I don't think it, it you know, I'd be surprised if anyone's really talking about it come December, but, uh, you know, for the night, it did its job, and I like that they gave Asuka some teeth again uh, and gave Becky some vulnerability as well, both of which are incredibly important considering that they seem to be prominently, set to be prominently featured for, for WrestleMania season. I thought they worked really hard, and it, the end result was, and the end result was very good. Uh, I didn't think it was great, I really didn't think anything on the night was great, but I thought that it was very good, and they they left they left a little bit on the table to come back to it and really have, um, you know, I felt I thought they they showed enough potential there. That I mean, I think the two of them in the right setting at the right time could have a, a real classic, uh, definitely a very positive addition to the the increasing library of really good women's pay per view matches. I think, you know, I thought the first five minutes of it was was awful, um, really bizarrely mapped out. And then suddenly they got into a groove and it became really good. And I thought the uh, I thought the finish was was really, really well constructed. I thought it was a bit of a mess to start with. But, you know, I think I think sometimes still with these prominent women's matches, with these kind of four or five women at the top, you, you tend to find that there's a little bit of a case of almost trying uh, to prove themselves still a little bit too much rather than just kind of relaxing into it and letting their talent come to the fore. Um, yeah. But I, I, I go on. Go on. No, no, sorry. Go on, Mav. No, but I, I think, I think that's the thing is that I was thinking at the beginning of the match, like, oof, this is messy. And then, and then they sucked me in, um, you know, with the, the, once they settled into their performance and settled into a story, I thought it was really good. So it, it's an interesting case of maybe, you know, more experience in that kind of big match setting of, of opening up a pay-per-view of the calibre of the Royal Rumble, you know, is eventually, I think, I think Doc, you just mentioned this, they are going to knock it out of the park together. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the things that I, I was sort of talking about last week on the pond, or the week before, I can't remember when, um, it, and one of the reasons why I'm kind of uh, a lot cooler on the Becky Lynch hype train than a lot of other people is that I do find that her body language in the ring can be very sort of over the top and a bit hammy. And um, so I, I, and that played a part for me in, in what you just said, Mav, sort of it getting off to a bit of a, bit of a, of a uh, rough start, I guess you could say for me. But like you say, I think they, they settled into something pretty, pretty solid. I totally agree with what you just said, Plan. I was actually going to say that myself when, after oh, you said whatever it is that you were going to say. Uh, there was a point that you made a couple of weeks ago, maybe a while ago, on Twitter. Uh, it was about what she. It was about the way she spoke. Uh, I think something in reference to how you're not overly enamored with the, the, the her delivery sometimes. How she can get a little bit cheeky. Yeah, Bill. Uh, and, and I countered. I said, oh, absolutely. I agree with that. It's like she Becky right now seems to be a wrestler of extremes. So, mm. you know, if she is playing the baby face, then she has a tendency to veer hard into that. And, you know, when she was the pure white meat baby face, it was the the straight fire thing. God, I hated that. Oh, my God. That drove me crazy. That 
silly shouting thing she would do where she would like do a bow and arrow type motion or whatever the hell it was and then she would yell straight fire like god that is so inauthentic that just totally takes me out of whatever it is you're trying to do in the ring it just i think that type of stuff it just doesn't really have a place in 2019 pro wrestling that's effective as older school thinkers might think that it still is i think it's totally hammy and stupid there's but, a reason why you never saw bret hart do that sort of thing yeah. absolutely <laughs> yeah quite and she's and that's that's a that's actually a good point i think that one of the things i love so much about sasha banks is when the bell rings sasha banks plays her character when she veers into it in certain subtle ways that are really great and i don't think becky has figured out yet like if you listen to becky's promos this week I thought they were fantastic. I thought what she said, you could, you, it was totally believable. She fully got into character. I, I couldn't tell where Becky Lynch, the character, and Rebecca Quinn, or whatever her name is, ended in that promo segment. But I don't think that's translated to her work in the ring consistently yet. So there are moments like when someone kicks out of one of her big moves, the way that she looks just looks over the top and ridiculous. And I think once she figures out how to take that same confidence and attitude that she has when she's standing across the ring cutting a promo from someone and and manages to translate that to the character she portrays when she is wrestling, then I think she's going to have something incredibly special that there there will be very few people who could take much away from it. Uh, Not to be overly critical, but it was something that really did stand out to me is uh, a little too a little too over the top at times with the way that she reacted to things. Yeah, I think, you know, the, your ideal um, when you talk about something like that is, you know, if you think about 97 Steve Austin, who, who was somebody who just had this incredible sense of matching his character on the mic to his character in the ring. And those two things were always so well joined together. And it's interesting because the kind of, you know, in, in some ways, the, the character of Becky Lynch has, has followed to some degree the same kind of path as that 97 Austin character was was, was kind of following, um, even down to the way in which she started getting over and the way that she got over. Um, but, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think I think, you know, she hasn't quite had aside from. I can't remember which match with Charlotte it was, which was the one that I really liked. I think it might have actually really weirdly been the one in Australia that I really liked. But aside from some of the Charlotte matches that she had straight after that character change, um, yeah, she's not really put it all together in the ring yet. I wasn't as big a fan of the TLC triple threat as some people were, for example. Um, So, yeah, I I think, you know, what we're hoping for now is, is that, you know, she's she's kind of gone into the rumble and, um, and has kind of won the rumble on one leg, so to speak. And yeah. And I guess we, we just hope that WWE are going to hold, uh, hold fire on. I mean, actually, what do we think about that? Like uh, there's a lot of angst around the uh, community about the prospect of them, perhaps adding Charlotte to that match and, and watering it down. Um, I mean, do you think that WWE adding Charlotte to this would be a disaster um, you know, I know that you're both big Charlotte fans. I don't think it would be a disaster. I don't. I think for me, it's just one of those examples of, uh, you know, here we go. We're talking about Becky and we're not talking about the person who beat her clean tap out in the middle of the ring on Sunday. And there's an issue there wide open now with Charlotte still 
from a match that Plan has said, and I, I kind of agree with him, should have main evented WrestleMania last year. There's a big rematch waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. There's That's a natural route to take, because otherwise there's really nobody out there who's in a position to have that big match with Asuka and it be that big of a match. If you have Asuka versus Charlotte 2 back-to-back WrestleManias, then you then it's it's almost like the Royal Rumble in the sense that you not you you'd have a hard time picking which one of the women's championship matches is really bigger if you go down that road. So if you add Charlotte into the match, I'm not a huge fan of triple threats anymore. I think it could uh, I think it, it, it I don't think it's necessarily going to hurt the match quality, but I do think it's going to water down the story because there's a clear cut dichotomy that's established between Ronda and Becky. There's just no need to add Charlotte. And I can see why people would just be like, man, this is just one of those Vince McMahon things where he's married to the idea of this one particular person being in it. And instead of just having the cutthroat mindset that, hey, look, Becky beat you out, Charlotte. So you're moving to the back a little bit this time around. And and maybe you'll main event WrestleMania next time rather than it being, well, we want the women to main event WrestleMania. and, And, well, we have to have Charlotte in there if we do that, right? Of course we do. Well, no, you don't. It's, it's unnecessary. Look at the reaction. Everyone on WWE side is always talking about how uh, how Brock Lesnar, you can tell how much of a draw he is by the number of hits his stuff gets on YouTube. Well, go look at the YouTube segments. The Seth Rollins-Brock Lesnar segment and the Becky and Ronda segment, they're neck and neck. They're like each 1.7, 1.8 million views just since Monday. So, I mean, it's it's um, to me, I mean, it, to, I just feel like it's just not necessary. And again, when you talk about WWE making the, the quote unquote right decision or making the, the best decision also quote unquote, I think that you have to take into account that um, sometimes it's just less is more. So we don't need Charlotte in that match. Just let Becky and Ronda do their thing. It's there. It's going to sell. It's going to be a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, a, a, a complex situation though in, in honesty like you said i think there's because i think there's a lot of moving parts to, that are worth considering uh you know it, it's it's true enough that becky kind of be, beat out charlotte sure um i think you could also make a valid argument that charlotte came back out fighting when she got given the opportunity to, to wrestle ronda at survivor series instead of becky because becky got injured uh, and made a, a very good account of that match with with extremely little build. And I think that Charlotte's performance in the Rumble this year as well felt like the performance of someone who was trying to turn heads. Um, so I think Charlotte's responded to the challenge well. And by the way, just as a quick side note, I love the fact that you're seeing that competitive fire between two performers vying for a top spot in a division on, on WWE TV, which is something else I think we, we probably lacked too much of um, as fans in, in recent years as well. There's also, like you say, Doc, the fact that, you know, Becky's popularity has has surged in the last few months, so should they just run with that, and should they recognise the reaction that segment got on Raw, uh, and say, okay, well that's got to be, you know, that's got to be the match, um, especially because if people if they do insert Charlotte, people will see it as exactly what you've just described, Doc, as Vince McMahon being married to an idea which basically damages any uh, any. Um, sort of fan perception of this being a genuinely new era with new creative practices, you know, that would be a, uh, whether it's true or not, a toxic reminder of, of one of the many issues people have perceived WWE to have over recent years. There's the Asuka situation, in which case if Charlotte isn't wrestling Asuka, who the hell else is going to do it? Because, you know, it doesn't feel like there's another performer on SmackDown Live of the stature or caliber large enough to warrant 
that SmackDown Live Women's Championship match. Um, and WWE may consider Asuka Stars having faded a little bit. It would largely be because of their own fault, if that's the case. Um, but I think Asuka's still a big deal. She's just got a tap-out win over Becky Lynch, you know, which creates a, a, a renewed sense of threat about her presence as a character. Uh, and I think there's big money to be had in, in Charlotte versus Asuka too. I think that there's a story there. Asuka has something to prove this year, so there's natural intrigue. Asuka is an opponent worthy of Charlotte's stature. Charlotte is an opponent worthy of Asuka's stature. There's a lot of moving parts. I think, for me, you know, I've always had a bit of a childish thing against triple threat matches at WrestleMania for, for sort of world championships. Um, and so I, I just prefer a one-on-one match. And my so my preference would be for a one-on-one match. Charlotte Asker two on one side, Becky Ronda on the other. I think that's the natural uh, sort of avenue to go down, really. Um, and I think it's probably the most compelling. The other thing is they've got, a, as I said earlier, they've got a long time to drag this story out. They may go for the triple threat just because it gives them easier creative material for the next umpteen million weeks while we wait for WrestleMania to roll around and we get through two pay-per-views between now and then as well. I mean, yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess we got the chamber though, haven't we? Which does allow them, allow them the sort of luxury of a multi-person match in the middle of all of that, so it doesn't get, it doesn't get too repetitive. But like, I'm, I'm totally with both of you in the sense that, you know, I, I felt that, you know, the, the, the first year um, that the women were prominently featured was, was 32, where you had a, um, was it 32? Was actually 30. 33 32. Or? 32. it was 32 no, yeah yeah so 32 that triple threat 33 that had a triple threat and and i think was it point or was it even fatal four-way it was four-way so yeah so so yeah triple threat fate four-way and then last year was the first year they'd properly done you know one-on-one matches that they built to you know they built to um blissby jackson they built to um Asuka v charlotte and i thought and I th- even though that even though the triple threat was fantastic even though the fate of four-way was actually very underrated as well I much prefer the dynamics of the two characters interacting with each other. Um, I think you're right, Plan. I think there's, a, there's an existing story there. Like every, everyone expected that Asuka was going to keep her streak. I think. I mean, at least I expected her to. Um, and the fact that they kind of, you know, had Charlotte beat her and then never really revisited it because then Which Asuka. Is what Doc was saying again earlier. Yeah, and then Asuka kind of like went off into the wilderness for a bit, while they messed about with Carmella, and then you know they they managed to sort of rebuild a post December I guess so I think I think it is the, the smartest thing to do and I, and I hope that, that WWE is smart to listen to their audience on that one really um, so I mean on the on the sort of Ronda Rousey side of things then obviously she had um, a match against Sasha Banks uh, what do you guys think about that one I really liked it um, I thought I think I've seen you may have may have tweeted something about this this uh, Mav. I'm not sure, but I I quite like the or it might have been Doc. I don't know which one of you it was. It might have been both of you. I quite like the scrappy aesthetic that Ronda's matches have. Um, there's something about it that I'm I'm not saying I would want every match to look like that, and I'm not saying that it's done deliberately. But I, there's something about it that I quite enjoy, uh, and I like that this felt scrappy. I, again, on on Sports Entertainment Today, I commented on how interesting it was to me that there was a bit of symmetry between the two women's title matches on, on Royal Rumble because you had a similar setup of, uh, you know, a brash kind of loud mouth, um, the big I am type character challenging someone who is known to be a very very dangerous uh, in ring competitor um, whose st- main strength is their martial prowess. So there was an interesting symmetry in Sasha versus Ronda and Becky versus Asuka, I think. 
But I also like the fact that they were kind of inverted because in the SmackDown one, you had Asuka get some teeth back by making Becky tap out. Um, and in, in the Raw one, you had Sasha get some teeth back even because Ronda was forced to pin her because she wouldn't tap out. So there was nice symmetry between the two. And generally what I liked about it was that, uh, you know, that Bret Hart trick of that Sasha pulled of, of uh, Doc was kind of talking about it earlier, of, of leaning into the fact that she was almost the de facto bad guy in, in the story and not being afraid to wink and nudge her way back towards being what she was when she dominated NXT's women's division. I thought it was really good as well. I, I really liked it better on my second viewing. There's something about Ronda matches that make me always appreciate them more on the second viewing. And I think a lot of it boils down to we're in this era right now where so many wrestlers are so clean and crisp in the execution of what they do in the ring. And she's not. She's just not yet. Like the match with Charlotte at Survivor Series is another one that I thought was very similar in this regard. In the sense that, you know, a lot of the exchanges just like even there's this early exchange where Sasha goes up to do the old Eddie Guerrero move uh, where she grabs Ronda's hand and slaps her and runs up the ropes and comes off. And then she falls flat and Ronda just kind of looks at her and then they get it together and, and do it. So it's just not that clean. Um, it doesn't have to be. I agree with Plan. I think there's some interesting aspects to that aesthetic that different that makes it different in an era where so much looks the same. So that's a good thing. But the character touches are really what drove this match. Like I thought that um, I, I wouldn't if, if you asked me to choose between which I'd rather watch between the two women's title matches. I, I truthfully at this particular point, two watches in for both. I don't know that I could pick. I would probably consider them equal in just different ways. Um, so I loved Sasha, the, the, the little, the, the touch of her taking off her, her little arm get up that she has in her ring attire and utilizing that to, to help her lock in the bank statement. I just, I thought that was incredible. Like that, that is Sasha Banks from NXT to me. That's the Sasha Banks that, that had people talking about five-star women's matches. That's the Sasha Banks that. In, in my opinion, Sasha Banks was the women's revolution from the NXT perspective. She was everything that made uh, that that really embodied that term. Uh, you know, this just little little thing from from Boston, you know, coming through the ranks and finding herself as a character and and really translating that to what she did in the ring to an extent that you know, uh, honest to God, I mean, she was right up there. I guess she still is, but her star has faded a lot these past few years. She's she's one of my favorites of this generation when she gets to do that. And I thought it was a great showcase for her and another notch in, in Ronda Rousey's impressive, uh, impressive belt thus far in her career. Ronda Rousey's had some really good matches. So um, I'm excited for, for women's wrestling heading into WrestleMania season because of matches like those. Take it easy, Mark. Well, uh, yeah, I, I um, it's funny. I've hated most of the Rousey, Rousey matches. I really have not in, enjoyed them at all. Uh, but that one I loved, um, and it is all—it's all Sasha. I thought she carried—I thought she carried Ronda magnificently, and it's exactly what you want to see, you know, a veteran wrestler do uh, when you've got somebody that's a bit greener. I mean, albeit obviously Rousey's got incredible physical gifts, but. 
you know in terms of pro wrestling she is obviously very very new to it and she's certainly not certainly not Kurt Angle when it comes to picking it up as if it's you know as if you've been doing it for the, your whole life so I, I thought Sasha was fantastic you know like like Doc was just saying the fact that she's um been forced to play this bland babyface character who may or may not be in a tag team with Bailey or may or may not be falling out with Bailey and it, it, that whole soap opera has been so depressing and has been one of the the worst things on Monday Night Raw. And then for one night, you've got Boss Sasha back again, and it was wonderful. It was fantastic to to see her have that kind of a match again. And um, yeah, I, I I give Banks all the credit in the world for having been essentially locked in a cupboard for the past two years and then putting that out there. I thought it was it, it was fantastic. It's a bit like you know, like um, during the second part of Dolph Ziggler's career, just every now and again, he'll just have a match that makes you remember what Dolph Ziggler was. It was kind of like a not dissimilar experience to that in a way. Absolutely. Um, so women's women's Royal Rumble then, obviously we talked about, about the fact that Becky um, entered replacing Lana, who of course, I mean, this is the nice thing as well, is that actually they, they took the trouble to actually, you know, have Lana get an injury on the pre-show so that she could be subbed out of the Rumble. Like, even that is is long-range storytelling that I don't often credit WWE with. It was it was quite funny as well because Rusev bangs in. It's Rusev's fault. He hits, sort of runs into Lana. Lana falls off and hurts her leg, and then he just <laughs> stands screaming at her to get up again. It was quite funny. Lana, get up! Yeah. <laughs> even though it was his fault. <laughs> That's funny though. I relate to that so much because that happens. Like if if I'm playing around with my kids, and and they like, and and I turn around too quickly and like knock into their face and they fall down and start crying. I'm like, no 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 no, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. Because I don't want to feel bad for having injured them. <laughs> That's brilliant. Like I, I think I think you know just that just that sort of small touch I think is encouraging from WWE's. Um, perspective so um women's rumble i was really pleased about one thing with this is that last year was obviously loads and loads of, of faces from the past and this year um they very much focused on the present and future of, of women's wrestling and you had really lovely performances from people like um shirai and casey catanzaro and um oh who's was the uh, the chinese one from uh, zaya something other from for mayo classic yeah so you had like some nice nods to the future i mean obviously there was like, that great photo that johnny gargano tweeted out of uh, of him getting to watch candace LeRae's um debut um in the uh in the royal rumble and that was a a really a really awesome moment candace wrestling getting her <laughs> getting her uh, opportunity so that was that was the really pleasing thing about it for me like as a match i thought it was it was largely a mess but i enjoyed the, the fact that it was mostly contemporary i see i've seen your your sort of tweets and stuff about it and i feel like you, you've been a little harsh in honesty i really liked both this year's rumbles i wouldn't say that they were you know they were sort of top of my list either one of them really but um i think they, they definitely reward um rewatches and, and one of the what's funny is and you're gonna love this man the the women's one reminded me a little bit of 2002 um which i'm not a huge fan of but the reason why i say that is it felt that the that the periods between a lot of the entrances were longer than the advertised 90 seconds which i have no problem with i quite like a, a long running royal rumble match it was one hour 12 minutes according to, to wikipedia so it's all you know to say it's a standard 30 person one um it's 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 a long one um 
the uh, what I said on Aftershock was that this and the men's one were both they both felt like back to basics, both in terms of the content. So you know you didn't have the kind of stylized stuff that you tend to get these days. It felt like I was much more like watching a sort of an early rumble from the late 80s, early 90s, where it would just be, you know, a bunch of people in the ring, some of them trying to chuck others out and some of them brawling. Um, and it also felt back to basics in terms of the focus, which, as you said, uh, Mav, was was all on contemporary talent. What I loved about the women's one uh, was, you know, last year's lean, it sort of seemed to very self-consciously play on the idea of, you know, this is a recognition of where women's wrestling has been over the last, you know, however many years. And in comparison, this year's felt very much more like this is a recognition of where women's wrestling is going to for the next however many years. Because, yes, you had sort of the the, the long-running stars like Natalia in there, but you also had a lot of NXT and Mae Young competitors in there, and you had a lot of the the sort of the, the um, you know, prominent featured performances from some of the newer main roster talents like Mandy Rose had a had an impressive showing. Um Lacey Evans, you know, brave trick that they pulled having to come in one and, and last as long as she did. I'm not sure. She, I, I think it, it showed her weaknesses and, and the learning curve she still has ahead of her as a performer, mostly. Um, but generally speaking, I said this on Sports Entertainment is dead. What I loved about both of them and, and with the women's as well is that they look deceptively simple. They watch as deceptively simple, but there's actually a hell of a lot of character stuff going on. And I think that there was a, it's in the micro, it's a lot more sort of in the micro interactions through the matches. You have to, you do have to look for it a bit harder. Um, but the women's one, you know, what they did with the riot squad, I thought was fantastic. Not just in the sense that it was a new trope for a group, you know, then dominating the ring, but they kind of came back out and picked people off. But the fact that it led into that, that you saw the arc develop, Liv Morgan went out as soon as she entered the ring and then Sarah Logan didn't fare much better. And then they came out and, and sort of wreaked, wreaked havoc with the Ruby afterwards. I think that the Iconics were absolutely fantastic. They were, you know, they gave it a bit of, a bit of comic wit without really overshadowing anything, which I thought was, was great. I thought Nikki Cross was brilliantly on point. Charlotte, I thought, had a fantastic performance that night, and I loved her interactions with with uh, Kyrie Sane in particular. I thought it was a compelling moment. I thought Nia Jax was produced well, Becky Lynch was produced well, the final two was produced well. I loved the the way that they used Alexa and, and uh, Alexa Bliss and Ember Moon. Um, so in in terms of the the performances, the individual performances, I think there was a hell of a lot going on uh, character wise. Um, and the theme of the night for both Rumbles, to me, for for the performers, seemed to be to chase that spirit of Bret Hart in 94. And what I mean by that is committing completely to the character that you're portraying, even though you're, you know, you're just sort of sliding into the background a lot. Staying constantly on point, I thought, was was what made it really great. Middle of the pack, I think, for me. I thought the, the set pieces, to borrow a term from you, Plan. Uh, were in the first half of it fairly sloppy. Like I, I just that I felt like the execution was off in a lot of the the basic set pieces that they were trying to execute. Which you know, for for my personal fan taste, that type of stuff just kind of knocks me out of the fiction temporarily, and then I have to work my way back into it. You know, Mickey James had one that was just a little off, and there were a couple other instances of that. Um, so it really it took me through really the riot squad coming in and doing what they did when Ruby entered, that's what got me into it. Like I got re-engaged back at that point. Uh, some of the near eliminations I thought were great. I loved 
the the segment that they did with Naomi and um, um, uh, what's her name? Mandy Rose. And Mandy Rose. I thought that was great. I thought Mandy Rose had maybe not in her performance in the match, it's in most of her performance in the match itself, but in that moment when she was already eliminated and then she helped eliminate Naomi. I thought that was cool. I've actually kind of rather found that little storyline between them to be somewhat of a guilty pleasure on SmackDown the last several weeks. Um, by the way, she does a really good job live of getting her character over. I went to a house show several weeks ago and she, uh, she nailed it in terms of getting heat. So I like her. Uh, I see potential there as, as does Vince McMahon. I don't know if he actually sees potential or just a blonde <laughs> girl with big boobs. Well, she, she is, she is Trish. She is a lot like Trish Stratus before Trish Stratus got good. You know, I think that's yeah. what Vince sees, isn't it? It's like, all right, you've got the raw materials. You can get good if we keep giving you the opportunity. Which is fair like, enough, I, to be honest. I could do like without to... Corey Graves constant leering at her on commentary. I well, got a big he... kick out of that, I must admit. <laughs> I got a big kick out of that. Um, but that, I loved that. I loved the Riot Squad. And, and I thought that the Becky Lynch stuff was just handled perfectly. Like, I, I, I had... Uh, you know, there was a, there was definitely a lot of 2014 memories coming to the forefront for me throughout that match and throughout the week leading up to it when everyone was predicting she would win when she wasn't announced for it. Uh, I kind of felt like, well, I guess this is going to be a, a good opportunity for us to see how far WWE has come with its ability to listen to its audience when someone gets that hot in the back half of the year before. Uh, and I thought they responded very well with a well-crafted story. Um, I had no issue with the way it was executed. I thought it was executed incredibly well all the way down through to the knee injury, um, which they did a really good job of not showing us that by accident on the camera. So it actually, from a distance, the camera angle they kept showing, it's like, damn, did she really hurt her knee? Like, she she looked like she landed funny. Um, and she may have, for all we know. Um, but the way that was handled and then coming down to her in Charlotte, just... Uh, Definitely a, a middle of the road kind of a rumble. Not something I, I have any interest in going back and watching again in its full length anytime soon. But um, you know, this was a Royal Rumble that wasn't about quality. It was the it was a Royal Rumble that was about getting the right winner done the right way, and they did that. And for that, I, I applaud them. I would love to see them get the winner right and have a great, great, great Royal Rumble too. But uh, at this point, I'll take what I can get. It's been like, I, think, a bit like you know, I, 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 I just, you know, I, the the rumbles were good this year. I don't want to, I don't want us to make it sound like they were terrible because I could, you know, I could comfortably name a slew of Royal Rumbles that are considerably worse than both of the ones that we got this year. I mean, I, I think what Doc's last point, I was just going to piggyback off there to say that, you know, something like '98, where, um, you know, it's important that Austin wins, but, but, you know, other than that, it's almost just the Rumble itself didn't, you know, it was almost immaterial. And then you've got that great rock performance um, in it, haven't you? But, but other than that, '98 is fairly unremarkable. Like, I think, I think for me, the Women's Rumble, I very much, I think, listening to Doc's thoughts there, I think he, he he's kind of encapsulates a lot of what I thought as well, and that the first half of it. Really, I think up until up until Payne and Billy come in, I think I re-engage at that point just because I like Payne and Billy so much. But I think starting with Lacey Evans, before she's really had a chance in the main roster to, to really get her character across, I thought the crowd 
you know, basically were were, were sitting there thinking like, who the hell is this? Why are they giving her a live mic? What is this? What what is this achieving? It was incredibly awkward trying to get over this nasties thing. Like, what what is that? Well, Um, I I will say this, though. I mean, I I agree entirely with you. I think it was an ill-advised experiment, but at least it was an experiment. And at least they took some a, a new contemporary star and and took a risk with them. If we get more risk taking with the contemporary lot, fine, but maybe judge it a little bit wiser. Next yeah, time. sure. I think it, it took me out of the first, uh, the, the, the first bit of it really, I think. And as, and as Doc said as well, I think it was pretty, it was quite botchy um, at, at the beginning. Certainly I re-engaged for the ending of it, but I do think an hour and 12 minutes is generally speaking too long for a Royal Rumble anyway. Um, no, 2002 is about that. Yeah, but 2002 is fantastic, so I allow it. <laughs> and it's also 2002 is at the end of a three-hour show. Yeah, this quite. Is <laughs> this is the thing, and I, and I think, and I think partially, you know, I, I probably judge, I probably judge both of these rumbles, you know, somewhat, somewhat harshly, in that you know, every time you look up at your your TV or you or you pause it to uh, to go and get a drink or something, and you come back, it's like, how have I got three hours of this show left? Like, what's going yeah, on? I mean, what, what, <laughs> yeah. Watching it live at you know four a.m. in the morning, you realise you've still got an entire Royal Rumble match to come. Is is leaves you quite incredulous. I it's, mean, the fact that they the fact that they felt compelled to have a, a fourth Daniel Bryan AJ. As your interior designer, I'm saying do everything in black. Walls, sofa, carpet, goldfish, everything. Um, can we not have a bit of color? Maybe one tiny highlight in Battleship Grey. It's your home, so you should be in charge. With Avancard's flexible home improvement loan, you are. You can choose any repayment period that works best for you up to 84 months. That's seven years. Find out more at avancard.ie. Lending criteria, terms and conditions apply. New applications only. Seven-year term applies to minimum loan value of €20,000. Avancard Dock Trading as Avancard is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Styles match that lasted 25 minutes on a pay-per-view that had two Royal Rumble matches on is just mind-boggling to me. Yeah, it's funny. The, the um, yeah, the production of the card in that sense was pretty odd because you know you had Bala Lesnar, which was like 10 minutes, which is you know kind of exactly what it should be. Um, and then as you say, like this this Brian Styles match that seemed to go on forever, an hour and 12 minute long Women's Rumble, and at the end of all that, you know, it's kind of. Yeah, it's, it's 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 a tricky one, you know, because I started watching it at sort of 7 p.m. UK, um, which meant that even though I hadn't stayed up to watch it live to deal with the going to work exhausted scenario the next day, I still ended up going to work exhausted on Tuesday morning anyway. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, even though I didn't stay up till four o'clock in the morning, I, I still felt after two straight nights of going to bed. Uh, well past midnight Eastern time, I felt very, very sluggish at the office on, on Monday. <laughs> I, I needed... Uh, I usually have a wrestling watching session on Tuesday nights. I, 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 I did. I for I went. I, I did not go through with that yesterday <laughs> to account to get another early bedtime in to account for the two very very late ones. I mean, it's all the more strange because actually Survivor Series and SummerSlam uh, didn't really go much past four hours. You know, they kind of kicked the habit of those yeah. ridiculously long shows. Did, did, um, I tell you what. I tell you what concerns me the most about it is if we've just had Royal Rumble last five hours, surely to God they're not going to make the main card of WrestleMania now last six. <laughs> I, I would I would say upwards of eight is is my uh, is my guess at this point. Um, I mean, for, for the record, I didn't, for the record, I didn't go to bed at four a.m. I didn't go to bed because by the time I got back from the friend's house, I watched that and we did aftershock. It was already about eight a.m. in the morning, so I oh, thought I'd just power through. 
So you know, it's it is it's beyond ludicrous that they that they continue to like. If you want to keep, you know, rolling everything out on every pay per view, fine, but find a way to you know have the discipline to make main events not last twenty five minutes, or start looking at splitting pay per views up across two days. I think they've got an interesting thing that they're going to have to reconcile with this, uh, with the rise of women's wrestling to the forefront is, is that we literally at this point, we could have, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. If you look at the, the Royal Rumble card, you, you quite legitimately had six matches that felt like they could be the main event. Um, six out of the seven actual matches that made it onto the main card, you could have you could have bought them in the main event slot because they featured characters that were engaging and, and that had a lot uh, of stakes in each one. So I think, you know, you look back in hindsight and you say, you know, WWE championship match styles and Brian, 25 minutes that needs to be on earlier. That needs to be maybe flip flopped with Shane McMahon. No, oh, God, well, that just didn't need to be on the card full stop, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, this is the thing. You know, they've got to learn to start killing the darlings a bit. I don't think they needed a WWE Championship match on the card, quite honestly. I don't think they needed... They certainly didn't need a fourth AJ Styles-Daniel Bryan match. Um, and they certainly didn't need a fourth AJ Styles-Daniel Bryan match that lasted 25 minutes. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think the, other, the other thing to say is that... I think they need to start realizing that not every championship needs to be defended on every show. Yes. You know, yeah. I think, you know, we've got, uh, you know, they've gone back to dual branded pay-per-views, um, which I think is a good thing in the sense that the single branded ones often felt a little bit thin and they were reaching for things. Um, but if you are going to have dual branded pay-per-views, then you need to make sure that you don't have everything on every show. And, you know, allow yourself to build stories to title matches over six over six weeks instead of over three weeks and and actually you might find that you get some um some better television out of it and some better stories i think that's probably the lesson that they need to learn yeah and i still think the best pay-per-view model and i mean lord knows i'm against the brand extension through and through but the best pay-per-view model that i think they've ever had was was the first one that they used when they got to 2003 which was when you, you had brand-exclusive pay-per-views and they alternated. So SmackDown had a pay-per-view in June. Raw had one in July. SmackDown had one in September. Raw had one in October. And when one of the brands didn't have a pay-per-view, what they'd often do is substitute it for like a big, big TV match. That's how you know the Kurt Angle-Brock Lesnar-Ironman match happened in, in 2003 because SmackDown didn't have a pay-per-view that, that month, but Raw did. I was there. You know, I was and, there. and I think... It must have been awesome to see, but you know, I think that's that remains the best pay-per-view model. I am nothing will ever convince me that in a brand extension company, uh, dual branded pay-per-views outside of you know in WWE the Big Four are a good idea. I just don't think they are, and I think one of the best, one of the most what rewatchable pay-per-views of recent years was Backlash 2016 when it was like two and a half hours long. You know, they had a, a little tag team title tournament on there. You had that classic between AJ Styles and Dean Ambrose. Because it represented an in-your-house pay, it was like an in-your-house pay-per-view, and in-your-house pay-per-views were great because they were, you know, they were they were a good length like takeover. You know, they're a bit like in-your-house pay-per-views. It's a good length. You have a good few matches on the card with some decent story development, and that's all you need on a pay-per-view. I think the thing is what what you just pointed out there, Plan, is actually there's a reason why people really like takeover, and the reason people really like takeover is it's two hours twenty minutes of great wrestling. And I know we, you know, you, you can debate like that some of them have got 
you know more memorable matches on than others and, and so on and so forth but but i tell you what like it, it's it's so much nicer to watch two hours and 20 minutes of high quality pro wrestling than it is to you know to kind of to watch five because it's just it's just not possible to enjoy you know what i mean what's the analogy we always use plan like it's it's the uh, the Simpsons episode where Homer is in hell and he constantly be, being fed donuts like you want all the donuts in the world and that's and that's sometimes WWE's approach to um you know to, to to card creation and it's just it's not sustainable. I will say and I I've been saying this ever since it happened that I still think SummerSlam last year demonstrated the best way to go about doing big fours in this day and age where they all last you know four odd hours because SummerSlam was great they and all it was was they recognized the stuff people weren't interested in and kept that short. They recognized the stuff that was going to do well in the ring and they gave that the time it needed. And the result was, and absolutely, I hadn't had as much fun watching a pay-per-view live uh, as I did watching SummerSlam last year in a long time. I think the the issue they're going to have now, I, like, I agree with you. I think SummerSlam was very well paced. The problem was is that it did feature a lot of stuff that nobody cared about. So you had in this particular pay-per-view's case with the Rumble, you had a situation where the core six matches, virtually everybody cared about. So you had six matches that, like I said, I mean, all, all of them just seemed, that was one of the things that got me so into uh, Royal Rumble season this year as I looked at the card and I was like, man, that, that's a great card. On paper, that's a fantastic card that has the potential to be an, an amazing pay-per-view. So how do you create something? How If you're WWE, if you do strike this this sort of, we'll call it luck, call it uh, smart booking, I'm not sure which yet. When you get it right and you have so many matches on a show that um, and you've got to find time for it all, then, I mean, you just have to be smart and think, well, okay, if we put Brian and Styles out there, it's the fourth time they've prominently wrestled each other. Second straight pay-per-view. If we put them on after a Royal Rumble featuring the most overact in the game right now, is it going to get much of a response? And I think the clear answer is no. So, I mean, which is the higher priority, the WWE Championship or Shane goddamn McMahon? And, <laughs> and switch those things around, and I think you've got... I think that title match ends up going going over much, much, much better. I think the crowd is engaged in it twice as much, if not three times as much. And then the tag titles, I mean, the tag titles are, aren't in good shape anyway right now. You put Shane McMahon out there, it's not, you know, it, it's whatever. So I think it just, it just was not well judged putting that lengthy a match for the WWE title on right after what is probably the longest Royal Rumble non-40 members ever? Is fact check that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting actually. I've just just as you were talking there, Doc. Um, I, I've got up the uh, the WrestleMania 17 card, and this is quite interesting. Just thing I was thinking of, right? So, obviously, you know, it's a it's a WrestleMania in the 2000s, so it's around four hours long. But if you look at you look at the match times, all right, Jericho v Regal, seven minutes. Taz and the APAV, right sensor, Godfather and Val Venus. Uh, yeah, Ball, God, Goodfather, Val Venus, right? Four, min- four minutes. Kane, Raven, Big Show, nine minutes. Eddie Guerrero v. Test, eight minutes. Angle v. Benoit, 14. China and Ivory, two. Shane v. Vince, 14. Uh, TLC, two, nearly 16. Um, Gimmick Battle Royal, three. 
Taker Triple H 18 and then Austin Rock 28. So, you know, you've got the matches which were sort of, you know, the most the most kind of uh, prominent matches which were going to go on for a long time. Most of those are kind of separated by a few shorter matches to give people time to, to recuperate. And the only exception of that is that, you know, you've got the, uh, the, the McMahon thing goes on right before TLC. But other than that, you've got palate cleanse in the middle where you get a shorter match that you kind of go, OK, I can, uh, you know, this doesn't matter so much. I can recover my bearings a bit. And then this thing that I need to concentrate on that I've been really looking forward to, I can pay full attention to it. Yeah, I mean, car construction's been an issue for the, of theirs for years now, hasn't it, though? I mean, the, the the biggest issue is that they seem to be afraid of short matches, like as if, I, mean, I can't remember what pay-per-view it was, but there was a there was a pay-per-view not too long ago where every match was 15 minutes, and half of them you were like, really, you gave that match 15 minutes? Um, and Quite. It's, and it's, you know, they, they need to get out of this fetish of every main event needs to be, unless it's got Brock Lesnar, it needs to be, you know, 30 minutes long, just because... These are guys are really great wrestlers, you know, and they can do a load of stuff. Like that's great, but let's see what they can do in 15 explode. You know, Hogan versus Rock was what 15 minutes long. If that went on today, they'd have stretched it out to 40. Oof, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone needs to see Hulk Hogan wrestling 40 minutes in 1986. Never mind it. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Never mind 2002. Um, but um, I, I think I think that's that's a big thing for me is is, is what you just said, Plan. It's like matches. Like that's why Balor B. Lesnar, I think, was such a success. It was ten minutes of real high octane action, and unlike other Lesnar matches, it didn't just exclusively feature him on the offensive. They took the and the Triple H match from SummerSlam, whatever right, it was, yeah. um, but they made it you know a third of the length, and it worked. It worked really well, and it, it's uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I forgot what I was going to say now, but it doesn't matter. Well, as we transition into that, like obviously all three of us are thoroughly fed up with Brock Lesnar and would much prefer probably to never watch another Brock Lesnar match again. However, the fact that they've kept him around, um, I think it's fair to say that the decision to take Strowman out of that match was one that would have been met with approval by most people. And the fact that Balor got hot at the right time, the fact that he, he had that great little storyline of going over to the, you know, to the UK, defeating his protege in a surprise match, going back great over match. to raw. Exactly. Um, getting this one night story where he, he, he won himself a title shot, you know? Um, and then he's, he's flung into the story. I mean, let's know where, all right, I could do without the David and Goliath nonsense from Vince. That's sort of classic bad Vince writing, um, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk all over again. But, but the fact that they then followed through with the match made Balor like a genuine threat showed some vulnerability in Lesnar that you assume is, is there so that, you know, you can believe then in Rollins um, as the man to beat him. Cause of course, Rollins is kind of like super Balor. Um, <laughs> or, or or larger Balor or whatever you want to say. Um, no, Balor, Balor is little Rollins. Yeah, yeah, quiet. Um, and was that was that Steph Riley like medium Rollins? <laughs> <laughs> Steph Riley is is Aldi Rollins. Hardly. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think I, I think it was a, a really clever way of making people re-engage with Brock Lesnar and maybe Brock Lesnar himself I don't know maybe we need to give him a little bit of credit and maybe he no. said no I don't want this sort of boring match anymore I don't know no I'll never I, no 
Brock Lesnar deserves nothing but to fuck off. Well, um, I mean, I, I, I agree, but I think also <laughs> it, it, it seems fairly clear from all the reports and so on that, that, that he was bored of these sorts of matches, that he was happy. I think, yeah, I mean, the reports are that he prefers working with, with smaller guys, doesn't he? And I think that, that definitely showed. There was certainly a, you know, to be fair, to not be a, a dick deliberately about it, he seems to enjoy doing that match more than he seems to have enjoyed doing much of anything else since Goldberg. Um, so, uh, yeah, I thought it did. I th- it was good. It was good. Uh, I obviously I'm a big fan of the Ambrose match at WrestleMania 32. So I would say it's the Lesnar match. I enjoyed the most since then. Um, I do. I am kind of still a little bit crestfallen. They didn't just go, okay, we'll just, we'll have Balor win this. You know, even if, like you said last week, Mav, even if they'd have put the title back on Lesnar again between now and WrestleMania, like it's a shame they didn't give Balor that big, that big moment. Um, it's a shame. I tell you what, it sounds like a weird thing as well. It sounds like a nitpick. I suppose it is really, but I was kind of disappointed that he hit the coup de grace and, and Brock Lesnar kicked out because they've done such a, uh, like, it's a weird thing that's happened around that move in an age where everybody hits that finisher in every match. And most of them get kicked out of quite often, you know, that, that Balor's coup de grace has been a curiously kind of very, it feels self-consciously protected. Like it's very rare that you'll hit it if he's not winning the match. Um, and so it was kind of a, it was kind of disappointing to me that they, they let that happen. But what I liked about it is that it's a nice kind of lead in to the Rollins feud now, because we saw Rollins on Monday go right for Brock Lesnar's midsection. Uh, and you imagine that that might be something they sort of come back to a few times over, especially because it plays and not that they'll remember this necessarily, but it plays very much into what happened at Royal Rumble 2015, because Rollins, I don't know if you remember, broke one of Lesnar's ribs. I think legitimately when he did the elbow drop off the off the turnbuckle through the table, mm-hmm. and then the next night was the Monday Night Raw where, because of the weather, they did like just a bunch of interviews instead of a proper show. And Rollins did this sit down interview where he he was sort of like, I know what Brock Lesnar's weakness is. I found a chink in his armor. I'm not going to tell you what it is. That never kind of came to anything, but and I doubt it will this time around. But it just it, you know it kind of it's one of those like nice little coincidences that you can sort of backtrack and sort of weave into the in, interpret into the fiction a little bit. So it, it was a nice a nice setup for the Rollins feud and and a, and a decent enough little match and welcomingly brief. It was one of those matches that I felt like when it was over and I saw the total time, I was like, man, that felt, I didn't feel that short to me. Like it just, it felt like a very thorough, a very thoroughly engaging, fully expressed match in the beast mode style that Lesnar wrestles. And it was a long time coming that we had a Brock Lesnar match that, um, that, that had that had stakes I could engage in. That was a point that plan you made on one of the shows you did <laughs> last week. Um, you, you mentioned that, you know, we're in this era right now. We finally have reached a point where it was not a foregone conclusion what the result was going to be in this match. And that was extremely refreshing because the last cool. time there was a Lesnar match that didn't, that seemed like it didn't have a foregone conclusion was all the way back at survivor series 2016 to me when goldberg shocked the world and knocked off lesnar i mean that was one of those um you know scenario but the the thing about that was i really didn't give a shit about the result so it's been (laughs) since the ambrose match that i was really invested in someone maybe beating him 
I never cared about Reigns beating him, and they really beat that to death for so long that by that it really by and then the time, didn't do it. <laughs> and they, yeah, and they never did. Yeah, and then by the time they did it, like I literally, I turned it off before they had the match at SummerSlam. It's like, okay, good job, Ronda Rousey and Alexa Bliss main invented a pay per view. Good night. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I was invested in the outcome when he didn't come out, when Balor didn't come out as the demon, I pretty, I pretty much knew, okay, well, so much for that. But nevertheless, they did a good job of crafting a story that I could believe that Balor might still win. Um, even though the, I think if they'd done the demon, I, I wouldn't want, have wanted them to do the demon then and have the demon lose as a Balor guy who largely became a Balor guy because I love the aesthetic of the demon. But, um, you know, you take that element out and immediately became apparent. It's like, oh, it's just Finn Balor. He's going to lose. But they did a good job of, 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 of making sure that there was some compelling uh, – there, there were compelling reasons in the fictional story they were telling that made it seem like he still might win. So I thought it was the most engaging Brock Lesnar match in a long, long, long time. Probably my favorite Brock Lesnar match since um, – the last Undertaker match in late 2015. So it's been a long time. So I rewatched it and it rewatches really well too. It's not just one of those Lesnar matches that, okay, it's interesting on the night. It's got a good, as a lot of Balor matches do, it's got a good flow to it. So, um, well, that's I was, yeah. rewatch. I was going to say like, and I think I mentioned this last week, uh, on the pond. Um, Balor's this, this got this curious habit of, because I'm not a huge Balor guy, in honesty. Um, but he has this curious habit of, in these situations like the one he was in at Royal Rumble, like when he was in the Elimination Chamber last year, like when he was in, remember that Survivor Series match that was really random that year when like John Cena turned up and wrestled for SmackDown and Triple H was in it and all that kind of stuff. He'll, he'll just suddenly put in a performance that totally validates that he could be you know one of the top guys in the in the company like just a magnetic convincing uh, performance in the ring um and i think you know maybe he's just a casualty of wwe's inability to to really write characters consistently on tv but um he has this habit of when, whenever i sort of stop believing in the idea of balor as a top guy he'll just throw out the the extreme rules fatal five way that year is another example He'll just put in this performance where I go, okay, I totally get it. And and Royal Rumble was one of those again. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, you know, I think the month he's had, um, you know, pretty much from the first of the year to now, you know, validates what people that have been big proponents of him think, you know, because I've been very, very hot and cold on him. I really enjoyed him in NXT. I, his main roster stuff largely hasn't done very much for me, although it's not necessarily all of his fault. I think the way he's been booked and presented has been often very poor. Um, but yeah, the last month that he's had, hopefully, and this is what you opened up the show with, Doc, you know, hopefully this last month that he's had will not be wasted. You know, yeah. because because what they need to do is they need to make sure that if they're putting that belt on Rollins come the end of WrestleMania, well, he's going to need challenges. He's going to need people that you want to see wrestle him for that title and as plan was saying the other week on the pond you know Balor and Rollins have got unfinished business together they've got unfinished history together 
Um, and it's a, a story that I think everyone wants to see. I think there's a potential down the line for Rollins to turn, sorry, not for Rollins to turn, for, for Balor to turn heel, because, you know, we know that that's how he made his reputation overseas, and we've not got to see that in WWE yet, so that might be something that's very interesting to, to, to look at after WrestleMania. So what they've got to do now is keep putting Balor in these situations where he gets to show what a good professional wrestler he is, where he gets to show some passion on the mic, um, and keep his try and keep that momentum going, and then hopefully, you know, maybe have him, you know, if Dean Ambrose is 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 leaving and stepping away from that Intercontinental Title scene, then maybe Balor wins that title off Bobby Lashley. Get get that bloody thing off Lashley, put it on Balor, and let him do what Rollins was doing last summer, Absolutely. and put on all these barn burners over a mid card title. I mean, can you can you imagine like a Monday Night Raw where Seth is the Universal Champion and Finn is the Intercontinental Champion? Is a Monday Night Raw I can get very excited about. And I will say, I mean, I, I would love to see. I'm going to be very invested in in what Balor's road to WrestleMania looks like. I was very happy with the way it turned out last year. I thought it was cool that he got, you know, got a featured spot in the opening match for the Intercontinental title. I would love to see him do the same thing this year. And one thing I would love to see is if Ambrose is gone after WrestleMania, I know they're probably, if that's the case, not going to feature him. At WrestleMania, but I would love to see them use Ambrose to put over Balor on the way out because I think that would be a very compelling mid-card match at WrestleMania. Well, here's the interesting thing, actually. You know what you just said there, Doc. Because did you did you read the statement WWE put out? Yeah. What really stood out to me, I've never seen anything quite like it before. You know, they said we very much hope we'll be able to work with him again. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like I, they couldn't well, have been more. You know, transparent about the fact that they're actually they're, they they are gutted that he's that that he's leaving, and I think that does make it feel like to me like they're not going to job you know sort of to make him yeah. look stupid going out of the door. It'll be much more like the Diesel Shawn Michaels scenario, yeah. you know, when Diesel did that that had that great no hard bars match with um with with Michaels on his on his way out. Like that yeah. is the sort of thing I'd like to see them do with Ambrose, as you say, Doc. With Balor would be a great option. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree wholeheartedly with you, Mav. I mean, I know a lot of people um, are used to W, and you know, to be fair to them, the precedent is on their side to WWE sort of just tearing someone down as they as they leave the company, so as to make sure they don't look great going elsewhere. Um, but I think it's worth, and, and I know some other people say that that statement is <laughs> is an indication that it's a work. I don't think that it's a work. Um, and I can genuinely believe that Ambrose isn't happy with the creative quality of what he's been given to do, especially the way his heel turn kind of panned out, um, which really, you know, in retrospect, uh, after it, now it's all said and done, it's certainly very fair to say that it should have been much more intense and much more personal and much more and much grittier than it actually was. Um, so I could believe all that. Uh, and you're right, Mav. I mean, I can't remember seeing something like that before either about them putting out a statement saying, we, you know, we hope to work with you again and welcome you back. And I and, and you know, the, the news items, you never know how much truth is, there is to them. But they say that Dean had a one on one conversation with Vince and stuff. Again, this comes down to and I don't want to get too sidetracked with this because I'm a bit bitter about it. But it comes down to fans completely, almost deliberately seeking to undersell Ambrose's contributions to the company and his stature within the company. He is, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the biggest stars to come down WWE's pipeline in, in, in the last five or so years. He's undoubtedly one of the foremost talents of his generation. Uh, you know, he's, he's accomplished a hell of a lot. He's been at the absolute 
core of WWE's product for the last half a decade. Um, and I get the impression that this isn't some some nasty split. I think they're parting on relatively decent terms and that he's basically just said, look, you know, I'm not digging what you're giving me to do, so I'm going to go and find stuff elsewhere. And they've probably gone, well, that's, you know, fair enough. If we can't convince you to stay for this money, maybe one day we'll be able to work with you again in the future. Um, and so I agree wholeheartedly with Maverick. I, I, I get the impression that they very well may you know, feature him on WrestleMania. He'll probably lose whatever match he's in, and rightly so, quite honestly. But, um, and you know, how prominent a spot he's featured in or whatever, that, that remains to be seen as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I get the impression that, that um, unless, of course, he gets written off before WrestleMania, which is, is, is something else that could happen. But um, it would be nice to see, and I'm confident WWE, if, if Ambrose was up for it, would be prepared to give him respectful treatment on his way out of the door. They're not going. To, they're obviously not going to set him up to look amazing and send him off elsewhere. But I think they'll give him respectful treatment as he as he leaves. Yeah. I hope so. I will say as well. I, actually, I'm a complete hypocrite because I got really kind of excited with the interaction he had with Triple H on Raw this last week. Well, this is the thing is 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 that I, um, I saw Rich uh, interestingly enough tweet out just before the literally just before the news broke about about him running down his contracts that you know it was it was Dean's kind of best night in a long time. Like he stared down Triple H. You know he was he had a you know. Obviously, him and Rollins finally kind of finished this most recent feud, but as usual, the match was really good. Um, uh, he kind of went back to his kind of shield method of selling, which was interesting in itself. Um, so it, it's it's a pity because I mean, I despite the fact that the writing of his 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 most recent character hasn't always been the best, I still think he made the best of it. You know, like absolutely, um, and he he absolutely sort of still. You know, he's still committed to it and he still delivered it in, in, a, in a way that shows you what a skilled performer he was. And so, you know, obviously, again, the, the second time in four years, five years, I'm losing my favorite wrestler again, which is uh, a, a difficult, a difficult thing to come to terms with. Like, you know, having well, gone will... through it with Punk, at least, at, you know, I mean, at least at that point, Ambrose was well on his road to overtaking Punk at that point. So it's fairly easy for me to transition, I suppose now. I put all my eggs in the Andrade and Mustafa Ali baskets. I will say that, you know, stranger things have happened. Um, and there's still a long, like I said, there's still a long time to WrestleMania and Dean's not gone until he's gone, you know? And so whether they give him, you know, give him something juicy heading into WrestleMania as, a, as an attempt to woo him to stay, because he could technically still sign a contract on the day of WrestleMania. Which um, is what Punk did in money in the bank of course well, quite yeah absolutely and i'm not saying that's going to happen but it's a possibility you know he's not gone until he's gone ultimately so um you know don't don't lose all hope i dare say he probably will leave um but but wwe you know they may have given him that stuff on raw too as uh, you know as a sign to say look we're you know we're listening i think there was an article actually recently where that it was talking about this revival stuff and, and wwe were wanting to show the locker room they're willing to listen to people's concerns uh, and act on it. I mean, it's all starting to get very scarily similar to stuff that's going on in politics at the minute. But um, it's uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And the other thing is, I was saying this to Sam, you know, look, I grew up a Bret Hart fan and I was, uh, you know, I was, as was the world, convinced he'd never show up in WWE again. And he did, you know, so even if Dean's gone for, for you know, two, three years, if Bret Hart can come back to the company, bloody anybody can come back <laughs> Oh, to yeah, company. for sure. Certainly someone who is leaving, like I said, on what strikes me as quite... It's very quite good, it's very good terms, yeah. circumstances. And we're talking about a Dean Ambrose who is 
you could make the argument still isn't even in his prime. I mean, he's well, thirty. Fine. He's thirty-three years old. Yeah. Um, it reminds me a lot. This is the comparison that I made on Twitter in a conversation with Sir Sam and some others. That this feels to me a lot like Razor Ramon leaving WWF in nineteen ninety-six yes. to go to WCW. And I think that if if all Elite Wrestling signs him, then he has the potential to do things there that he never was afforded the opportunity to do in WWE to fully be unleashed as a personality and make himself an even hotter commodity. He'll already have what is comfortably, in my opinion, the third or fourth best resume of the last five years in WWE under his belt historically to, you know, to, to boost his profile whenever he decided to come back. But if he goes out and he helps AEW establish itself as a legitimate you know, second banana in the world, then, then that's, uh, I mean, that's a big deal. And that's the type of thing that you, it makes you wonder going back to an earlier conversation uh, about AEW and, and what it means. It's like, you wonder if Dean Ambrose would have decided to leave if there wasn't that kind of option on the table, you don't know exactly what's going to happen over these next few months. You'd love to think that maybe WWE recognizes the fact that there is this company with a lot of money behind it coming up, that there is a hotter beyond WWE pro wrestling scene that there has been in a, in a very, very long time. And that if someone like Dean Ambrose comes up and says, I'm leaving because I'm not happy with my creative direction, that rather than tarnish him over the next three months, they will say, like you were like you were saying, plan, well, let's let's give this guy a lot more creative freedom. Let's get him. Let's give him a lot more input. Let's see what he comes up with. Let's see if by giving him that, that maybe he'll change his mind. And, you know, if you're WWE, I think you'd have to have the confidence that even if you give him a reasonably strong push and you give him a good arc heading into WrestleMania season, that even if he, if, if he gets hot and leaves, you have to have the confidence that, Okay, well, I I can risk trying that to try to keep one of our best guys, and you know I, that I, I think that would be great. I think we're probably very optimistic to think that that is going to happen, but I would love to see it happen. And it's going to be either way. It's just it's it's one of the biggest pieces of news um, since all this came to to all this new stuff about a, another rival potential promotion coming into the fore. Uh, there's no question. I mean, Dean Ambrose leaving is one of the WWE's biggest losses since, um, since Daniel Bryan was forced into early retirement. And that's, that sucks. It's not, you know, he's going to be one of those guys who like Razor Ramon was in the mid nineties. It's, it's going to be very tough to replace the kind of versatility that he brought, he brought to the table. he, I've referred to him in the past as the ultimate WWE utility wrestler because you could put him in the tag team scene and the tag team scene instantly becomes more prominent. You can put him in the mid-card title scene. The, the mid-card title scene instantly becomes more prominent. You can put him, on a, as, as much as I hate them, on a pre-show at a WrestleMania and that becomes instantly more prominent. Or you can boost him up to the main event and it's going to be very emotional in a good way. So he's one of those guys who, you know, there's not a lot of guys who are as over as he is that can be utilized in that many different spots on the card with, with the ease with which they used him 
in all those different spots on the card. Exactly, it's, yeah. it's, it's worth saying as well, I mean, one aspect to this too, that, that if Dean Ambrose does leave, that could benefit um, a number of people, is that it removes the constant temptation to repeatedly keep reuniting the Shields to um, diminishing returns. Um, I know it's it's very low down the, the list of talking points, but it was something that just struck me as interesting and that, um, you know, if he leaves, he's gone for three, five years or something, then comes back. Um, like, you know, that makes a, you know, a future. Because the thing is, for as long as Seth and Dean particularly, but also Seth, Dean and Roman are all in the same space, it's WWE. They're not going to be able to not scratch that itch. And it's going to tarnish the legacy of, of you know, one of the most influential uh, groups uh, in the company's entire history. Um, so removing that temptation to constantly be revisiting that revisiting that helps. There's an, there's a very fascinating kind of real world uh, aspect to it as well. Seeing Seth maybe get into the top of, of of one company, maybe Dean turns up in in the you know opposing company and gets to the top there. I mean that just furthers the sense of fatalism that their wrestling uh, history with each other is always carried as well. So you know there's there's positive signs to to there's a positive side to Dean leaving WWE as well as a negative one. Um, for Dean more than anything, there was a fan. Uh, you know, it's it would be an, a very 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 sore loss if because next to Seth, like Dean's my number two quite by quite some distance. So. Um, absolutely, it's a it's a big loss for WWE, a sad one as well. If he does sign with AEW, it makes AEW that much more interesting conceptually and in execution. I will absolutely, if he signs with them and he's on that card um, that they do in May, I will I will watch it. I'm, I'm invested in Dean absolutely. Ambrose's success, no yeah, matter where it happens. Entirely, and you know, I'm not you know I'm not somebody that uh, that, that you know I mean actually thinking about it, you know. What did bring me over to TNA briefly, interestingly enough, was when was when Christian went over there. Yeah, that's another yeah. good comparison. You know, Christian in 2005 was a guy who, you know, was absolutely at the top of his game, and, and WWE just didn't recognise it, and and so he jumped ship and proved that he was a main eventer. And and I, and it's 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 one of those things where, you know, sometimes talented people um, that aren't quite being recognised enough just have to. Uh, just have to go and show it in a different setting. And, and you know, it, it seems as if we kind of reached that point. So, yeah, I will entirely the, the, get into AEW if, that's, um, if that ends up being the case. I'm just going to say this now. I mean, it's it's it, we could get a whole other show out of it, so I'll, I'll just mention it as we move on. But, you know, the frustrating thing for me is that I think the only entity in, in the industry that, that doesn't value Dean to the extent that he should be, frankly, is the fan base. And I'm not saying that to be provocative towards fans. I think WWE absolutely see him as a certified main eventer. Um, but that this narrative is, has been conjured up around him that he's because he's not, a you know, he's, his ring style isn't particularly fashionable is what I, is how I would describe it, that somehow he's, he's a mid-carder for life or he's you know, an underachiever or he's, you know, the third shield guy by some distance. And it's all poppycock. It's nonsense. And Absolute I think, nonsense. I, I think the to... reason why I ended up on a WrestleMania pre-show was because fans kicked off about how some clusterfuck generic SmackDown Women's Championship match had been pre-showed and not on the main card. And, you know, I mean, what else were they going to bump? They're not going to bump John Cena. They're not going to bump The Undertaker. They're not going to bump Triple H. They're not going to bump Brock Lesnar. They're not going to bump one women's match to, to, to quell a, an outrage over another women's match. They're not going to bump The Return of the Hardys. They're not going to bump Chris Jericho. You know, the only person left to bump was Dean Ambrose. And they did that in response to what the fans wanted. I think you know, the reason I think, you know, the reason why 
um, uh, you know, I, I think the reason why a lot of this stuff came up is because, you know, when Ambrose first got popular as a singles wrestler, it was, it was obviously wrestling this very frantic style. And as he calmed it down, I think a lot of people always expected him to be angry Dean Ambrose. And of course, like what they failed to realise was that, that it was very specific to that first feud with Rollins. You know, he was wrestling in that style because he he was wrestling somebody that he wanted to tear to pieces. And, and as his character developed, naturally his ring style changed. So I just think, yeah, I mean, but then again, I remember we're dealing with a vocal minority of, of, of nonsense on social media and people that maybe respond to our columns from time to time. And I think, you know, the wider fan base, the casual fan base, I think always proven to people, people that cheered for him, you know? So, true. Um, true. Very true. Uh, so let's, let's just talk. I mean, we're kind of running a little bit long on time here now. So let's talk about the men's rumble um, before we get out of here. Um, so obviously the, the right man won. I think we can all agree. Um, Seth Rollins is Chicago Bears tights. Um, some good memes based on that. I don't know if you saw those, Doc. Um, <laughs> I did not see those. Uh, there's, there's a really good one. I think I retweeted it. So it's somewhere on my timeline of um, uh, where Rollins is pointing to the WrestleMania sign. Um, somebody has photoshopped the missed field goal, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was I thought was very funny. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's. It's it's a fantastic uh, moment for Seth Rollins, of course, to, uh, to to finally to get that that big contemporary Rumble winner. It was something that was missing from his CV. We talked about it. Plan like anyone else winning that Rumble just would have felt like a massive misstep. So um, I mean, we'll, we'll turn it over to you as the, uh, the 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 biggest Rollins guy in the universe. Um, <laughs> uh, what, what 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 do you think? Like you know, was it exactly how you wanted it? Not exactly how I wanted it because the, of the Nia Jax stunt that they pulled, which, um, uh, I, you know, I'd, I don't want to focus too much on that. But what I'll say is uh, two issues with it for me. The first is that it completely breaks what's already a very tenuous fiction that surrounds the Royal Rumble match as an idea. Uh, because if, if the women have their own Royal Rumble match but can still turn up in the men's Royal Rumble, does that therefore mean that men could turn up in the women's? In which case, why isn't Braun Strowman just turning up in the women's Royal Rumble and winning that to challenge Brock Lesnar? So the whole thing just just was silly from a fictional point of view. Uh, but more importantly, it basically, as you as you get to number 30, Royal Rumbles really need to be building the momentum to to get into that final sprint towards the conclusion. And what happened was, because they, they, they brought in Nia Jax to do this thing, it just killed the momentum of the match completely dead. The whole match stopped to accommodate the Nia Jax thing. Um, so it's like, if you're going to do that, all right, fair enough. But but why do it then at a point where the match needs to be building pace rather than stopping dead to accommodate that? And then when you added in that Rollins was on the outside, Strong was on the outside, Steve pointed out very astutely in Aftershock, you ended up in a situation where there were four guys left, but you only had two in the ring. Uh, and so it kind of... The, the final four had to sort of get the pace going from a dead standstill again. I think that probably hurt the, the finish a little bit and, and took some of the wind out of uh, Rollins' big, big win. Having said that, you know, again, like I was saying earlier with the women's match, I won't repeat it, very back-to-basics approach. I thought one thing that I will say is that I thought, you know, I loved the, the stage this year with them coming up out of the dugout, and I thought some of the camera work as people were entering was fantastic this year. Samoa Joe sticks out in my mind. His entrance was great. McIntyre. Was great. McIntyre's was fantastic. One of the best produced entrances I think I remember seeing in a rumble, the way that they juxtaposed it with the humor of No Way Jose. And then he sort of comes out with, you know, from the haze of 
blue light and, and, and smoke with his coat below. And it was just a brilliant and compelling image. You know, the music thundering out. There Again, like I said, with the women, there were a lot of really committed performances in the match. Uh, I thought Shinsuke Nakamura was handled really respectfully, considering that he won last year's Royal Rumble. And it felt like a performance that was uh, very aware of the fact that he was a winner last year. And I thought he made a good showing of himself. I thought Samoa Joe was absolutely tremendous the whole way through. The number of times he kind of snuck up on someone from behind in the locked in a coquina clutch was great. Rollins, I thought, was obviously fantastic. I love the fact that not only did he win it, but he was the longest-lasting guy in there as well. And I love the stuff he did with sort of Bobby Lashley. Wonderful moment at the end when uh, Stroman goes to knock him and Ziggler off the off the apron, and he does that thing that we were talking about, Mav, when we did the Rollins Ambrose. Uh, specials on SEID where he sort of sees it coming and dives back into the ring in time to avoid it. It's a wonderful little touch. Ali had a great show in eliminating Shinsuke and, and Joe both. Um, Ambrose, I thought, was great for the 15 minutes that he was in the ring. I thought Drew McIntyre was good. Pete Dunne was a revelation. Keep your eyes, if you ever rewatch this, keep your eyes on him because he's never not working a body part. It really is fantastic stuff. Andrade was brilliant. Absolutely loved the fact he got to the last four. Um, Alistair Black had a good show in I thought Strowman had a very very good performance I thought he was he was very compelled the best I remember seeing him in a long time and I even liked a couple of the cameos like I got a bit of a kick out of how they handled Bobby Lashley in the match and I got a bit of a kick in how they handled Titus O'Neil in the match because they didn't overstate it they got in, they did the joke and then they got out again so you know again con- the, the contemporary focus was really refreshing um, and like the women's, I think you compare it with last year's again. You know, last year's played very, very self-consciously on that generational issue that's plagued the Royal Rumble. This year, it felt like, OK, it, you know, they had the Jarrett thing, which was stupid, and they had the angle thing, but that was all done within the first five minutes. And from that point on, it was all contemporary people. Um, you know, granted, you had vets like Shelton and, and Ray in there, but for the most part, it felt very refreshing, very contemporary. Back to basics again, obviously means a lot to me on a sentimental level with Seth winning it. And just all around, I, I, you know, I've watched it three times now and I've enjoyed it more each time I've watched it. But, you know, again, it's probably a middle of the pack one for me. It didn't particularly hold my attention for long stretches. Uh, it was a, the, the end of a long show. Uh, by the By the time that it started, I was really at this place, especially once Seth Rollins entered where I was kind of just holding my breath the whole time because I was like, Seth Rollins has got to win this match. My interest yeah. in, in the in the WrestleMania season this year is really contingent upon them telling him his story because I felt like, um, and I think one of you referenced this last week on the pond, but it's been such a long time since WWE got right the winner when they had the momentum necessary to win it yeah. and it mean the most. And it's like, like Nakamura last year. I mean, Nakamura was a ghost in the back half of 2017 after losing all those title matches to, to gender freaking Mahal, who by the way, <laughs> forever and always WWE has, has given me the most emotional, uh, the most emotionally resonant elimination of every subsequent Royal rumble match from here to eternity. Cause for this is the second year in a row. You'd think maybe enough time had passed, but when Jinder Mahal got eliminated this year, I got up out of my seat and I was like, "Yes!" <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but, but, um, but yeah, basically, you know, Seth winning, um, you know, felt like the culmination of something rather than, okay, well, you know, so and so shows up, 
and they're going to win it, or God forbid, uh, like Randy Orton was one of the most anticlimactic winners I can ever remember. Uh, yeah, we talked about that last week. Yeah, it's like okay, the Triple H thing. You know, you, you have to be able to look back at it in hindsight too. And you know, the, just so many winners of, of this past decade have have just they haven't completed the narrative. Like the Royal Rumble is in, in some ways the end of something. It's it's a huge accomplishment in and of itself, but at the same time, it's also the beginning of the the road for that particular guy who wins it to WrestleMania and how well that arc is completed. It's been a long time since we've had a Royal Rumble winner that completed the arc all the way through the WrestleMania main event successfully. And, and I hope to God that Seth can do it. Cause as soon as I saw that segment between him and Brock on raw this week, I immediately started dreaming up in my head how I think that match should go. And I think it has the potential to be tremendous. And if Rollins wins as I, I mean, there's, and certainly there's going to be a part of me in that match, too, where uh, I may have to just um, I may have to, to really to fully appreciate it. I might have to watch it a second time because the first time I'm just going to be holding my breath until he wins. Um, so I felt that way about the Royal Rumble. I thought it was awesome that the, the quote unquote surprise entrance that there are a lot of people out there that just harp on being such a necessary element of the Royal Rumble that I think that's ludicrous and stupid, frankly. Um, those surprise entrants were NXT stars. You know, I thought that was cool. Uh, I loved that. Um, I thought the finish, or I thought the finish was weird because Braun Strowman getting knocked down. I mean, Braun Strowman is a guy who, who can uh, absorb incredible amounts of punishment as has been seen in the past. And I don't remember what it was that knocked him out, but whatever it was, it certainly didn't warrant the, what felt like 10 minutes that he spent laying around on the outside of the yeah. ring. He so hit the ring post. With his, well, he hit the ring. He hit the ring post with his shoulder. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. The type of thing <laughs> that most of the time the guy would just roll back into the ring and keep Quiet. going. Uh, yeah. So that was very, very poorly handled. I thought, but the, the way that they finished it out, I thought was fantastic. Uh, I love the fact that Andrade was in the final four. Uh, it's going to take me a while before I can refer to him as Andrade rather than Cien Almas, because yeah. I always am Cien Almas and not Andrade. Uh, but I thought it was kind of weird that Dolph Ziggler was in the final four, because I thought I just read that he just finished up with WWE, and I felt like I read that last year, and it's like, okay. Uh, right, that's every year since 2012, there, haven't we? <laughs> To tease people, or it's it's not an interesting tease. It's like okay, Dolph Ziggler, nice. Uh, yeah, but- I mean, I, I, just to jump in very briefly, Doc. I, I'll say that the, the the one big flaw for me was that the role they gave to Dolph Ziggler very bizarrely should have absolutely have been Drew McIntyre's. Like I didn't understand that at all. Agreed. Totally agreed. I think they're they've gotten this weird place. I, I loved about the Royal Rumbles in the in the two thousands decade. Um, that usually the people you knew that were the favorites going in were there at the end because it maximized uh, the, the the drama there. And then the Raw SmackDown dynamic was a big part of that back in the day, like having Cena and Batista there at the end, like having Triple H and Orton there at the end. Uh, they did it with Cena and Triple H and Batista one of those years. They just I thought they did a good job of that for the most part there for several years in a row. And when they... They made it so where uh, here recently where 
they've gotten away from that. And, you know, I, I don't like that trend. I think it would have been great to have McIntyre there because he was the second. I mean, he was the he was the other favorite to win it. Mm. And if he's there instead of Ziggler, I think you've got a much more emotionally resonant final four and certainly final three once you get Ziggler and Andrade. Or I guess Andrade was eliminated before Ziggler, wasn't he? He was. So if you change away, I mean, I think there was a way that they could have done it a lot more effectively. But at the end of the day, much like with the Women's Rumble, this was almost not a Royal Rumble about the quality. It was about getting the winner right. And they got the winner right, and thank God they got the winner right. So very few complaints from me, even though I thought the quality wasn't really up to par. Um, there were definitely some cool stuff. And I think, you know, it's plan you, you pointed out so so well in a lot of the stuff you wrote and said about the Royal Rumble this year, about the tropes. The set pieces in this Royal Rumble, the potential was there for them to have some absolutely fantastic set pieces between all these NXT guys. Like, I would have loved to have seen a nice little slick exchange between Rollins and Gargano because both of them are so capable of producing those types of things. Missed opportunity there. Missed opportunity to really get some good set pieces with Aleister Black, who's capable of producing them in mass. A lot of Ali sort of set pieces were left on the table. So a lot of big... that, That could have taken this Royal Rumble up into the upper echelon if they if they just kind of allowed some of the stuff that could have been done to actually happen. I, I, well, I, thought, I was just going to say, that's why I said earlier with both of them, both of the Rumbles this year, that they watched to me very much like those very early, almost pre-92 Rumbles. You know, they're, they're, they're arguably not so much old school as they are old-fashioned in the way that they're, they're uh, designed. I think there's, 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 you know, there's credit to be had in that, but, um, you know, like you say, for... Uh, for the, the age we live in, where we're used to much more stylized stuff in, in Royal Rumbles, I can certainly see that that it would be uh, be anticlimactic. For me, the main takeaway is this, and I said this. I'm going to pick a random comparison out with Extreme Rules 2017 when they did that Fatal Five Way, where it was Joe, Wyatt, Finn, Seth, and Roman to determine who challenges uh, to challenge Brock. And I said then that's a main event that I think. I should be like, that's what a main event to me should feel like in 2017. To me, the Royal men's Royal Rumble this year was what a Royal Rumble to me should look like in 2019. So I didn't like it very much the first time I watched it. I have re- I watched, rewatched it, in fact, just before we came uh, on air. And I liked it better the second time around. But I think there's a few things about it that I didn't, that, that really didn't sit well with me. I think, the Elias Jeff Jarrett thing was just incredibly poorly thought out. Um, you know, I, I think I predicted on the pond last week that Elias would be number one because I knew they would be able to resist this him doing a concert thing. And Elias is just somebody that I just cannot understand the appeal of for the life of me. Um, and then to bring out Jeff Jarrett in 2019, I, that got it off to a depressing start because although it became very much about contemporary people after that, it was a bit like of all people. You, you brought out Jeff Jarrett. And of course, it's come out since that he signed an agent producer deal. So, you know, whatever, I guess. But I just, I just, I didn't need that. I mean, especially after that Lacey Evans nonsense that began the women's one. I didn't need that again. <laughs> I didn't need both the rumbles to begin with that. So I thought that was um, a bit of a, a misstep. Um, I think the, the middle section of the men's rumble was incredibly strong. I thought there was this great moment at one point 
where you had in the ring at the same time, like Gargano, Rollins, Ambrose, Ali, Black, Dunn, Joe, like all at the same time. And it was just, that was terrific. Like um, more of that, please. You know, great showing from, from Andrade for a second year in a row. You know, Ali was as brilliant as, as he always is. I thought Black was fantastic. As you say, Plan Dunn was perpetual motion. You know, Gargano was it was a great little Iron Man run from Gargano as well. Um, so, yeah, there's 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 things to like about it. But I felt like Rollins, I felt like he was poorly handled in, in a lot of ways. And I suppose what I'd set my heart on really was that Rollins would either, you know, have a really defining, you know, Iron Man performance where he just came through so much adversity to triumph at the end you know, or that he'd have a really impactful run for about 25 um, and just look like and just look like a million dollars and, and, and come out and win it. And instead, they did that weird thing. They also did with Roman that time where yeah. he's on the outside for a bit and it's like and it completely derails momentum. As you say, the final four was weird because it started with two of them not in the ring. Um, and I just felt they missed a bit of an opportunity with it, really. I was a bit disappointed for Rollins because it's his big moment. And I, I don't. I don't think it came across like as big a deal as it should have been, really. And I think, I think that's a I shame. Think, yeah, and I think there's there's a truth to that. I think it's a combination of, of a number of things. I think, like you said, the, the way that he was produced in the match didn't really facilitate an ability for him to demonstrate his greatest strength, which over the last year has been, you know, you use the term perpetual motion, just this ability to keep going. And it felt very much like they misjudged that tonally. I think the, the, as I said earlier, the Nia Jax thing and how that led into the structure for the for the final four winded the conclusion, so it wasn't able to really pick up a good pace um, and build to that to that finale. I mean, there's an interesting moment when Rollins goes when uh, Ziggler's eliminated. Rollins uh, grabs Strowman from behind, tips him over, and the crowd pops big for that. But then Strowman hangs on. They kind of play it a bit longer, and the eventual conclusion doesn't get quite the same reaction. So you wonder whether they'd have been better just going for that sudden sudden ending there but um i i would agree i think also the fact that as we've intimated throughout that it was at the end of a five hour seven hour show if you include the pre-show so i think people were pro- are probably just exhausted that by that point anyway which is something you know i mean crowd exhaustion is something rollins has come unstuck with a number of times in his career and it drives me nuts um but um so yeah i i agree with that but like i said with the women's i mean it's it looks deceptively simple but there's a lot of of stuff going on in the, the those those micro interactions between characters and uh i mean one for example that springs to mind that i absolutely loved was the fact that andrade eliminated orton which plays back to the fact that orton mm. eliminated andrade i didn't think simplicity was a problem with it though that's the thing i didn't think I, my criticism wasn't that it was simplistic you know my criticism of it was that it was not very well structured um you know, and I think it is kind of that's 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 the I me. Mean, I think you know the strength of it was the was the characters and at times um, the in ring wrestling that, that that took place, particularly people like Black and Andrade and stuff like that. But I just felt like the structure of it, because I think structure is such a key thing with Royal Rumbles, like how you how you divide up your field and how you kind of structure the animations and how you kind of build yeah. these tense points is is really sure. the key thing and I felt that's what they didn't do a good job with. I don't think simplicity except, was the problem. Except you're a fan of two thousand two, which is one of the most bizarrely structured Royal Rumbles ever. But I disagree on that. So I disagree it's well, badly structured. So <laughs> <laughs> And actually I think Seth Rollins um 
I know I, Triple H, I think, entered the 2002 Rumble fairly late. 26-ish, yeah. If it was it that late, because I really I felt like you know what Seth Rollins accomplished in the ring during his runtime was about was kind of similar to what Triple H accomplished in 2002. It just it wasn't the classic Seth Rollins performance that you would have expected with him winning from the 10th spot, uh, which is a little disappointing in mm. hindsight. I've only watched it the one time, but I, I do remember sitting there thinking at times that, um, I mean, he's the guy who I thought they, sh- they should have built most of the set pieces around. And I felt like he was largely absent from a lot of the really good in-ring action that did take place. He had a couple of cool little moments uh, the elimination of Elias stands out as kind of a natural babyface type moment from from Rollins, not a not an over the top, but a just hey, I'm gonna slap your hands and you're gone. <laughs> yep, yep. You know what are you gonna do? I liked that. I thought that the 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 whole angle with him getting put through the table would have been a lot more effective though if he'd been tearing the house down yes. uh, th- throughout that first you know the 30 minutes leading up to it. So I think there is definitely. This was a. I mean, I wouldn't even put this in the middle of the pack, quite frankly. I, I thought it was a, a pretty. Um, I thought it was a. There, there's just not a lot that stood out about it in a good way to me, except for the winner. I mean, the, the winner, I've got no issue with. But it, you know, it's it's almost like uh, it's almost kind of like 1998 to me. I, I've never been a huge fan of that Rumble. I thought there were a couple of good performances, but for the most part. You know, 98 would be well toward the back of the pack of the ones I would rewatch in a pinch. Um, I thought this Royal Rumble had more things about it that stood out for bad reasons than things that stood out about it for good reasons beyond the winner, you know, obviously. But the Nia Jax thing was just, I thought that was, I, I personally don't think there's any defense of that. Yeah, uh, it's very cool. Uh, Nia Jax being in the in the men's Royal Rumble is, uh, it was just asinine. Got the deepest roster of talent that you that you probably have ever had, and and we we got to put Jeff Jarrett in there. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know if Kurt Angle is going to come in for four minutes and get you know pretty hastily eliminated unceremoniously, then why is he in it in the first place? Well, could, quite. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Who was that? Who was that? Well, there, quite, I think there yeah. were five eliminations that took place in under a minute. So. Um, I mean, there were a lot of people who just kind of went in and went out, and it was just—it's just strange. Well, not think, a not a formula that I would have that I necessarily think that they should use in the future. Yeah, agreed. I think I think that um, well, that's because it's a formula they used in the distant past, and there's a reason why it's largely consigned to the distant past. But um, I think that uh, what was I going to say? I was going to say that what was what was a little strange about both of them this year is usually you get one person in a Royal Rumble match who has like that, that big performance, whether it's because they eliminate a load of people or whether it's just because they're embroiled in the middle of all the action or whatever. And it felt like neither one of them this year anchored themselves around like a big central performance. And, and I agree entirely. Like I, and I, as I say, I think Seth Rollins was produced in a way where he was almost denied the opportunity to play to his strengths in order to do that. But I'm not, too concerned about it because you know i think there's definitely a you know i would i would say this but i think there's a there's an orton 09 level performance in seth for a royal rumble uh, and we'll get it next year when he wins the 2021 <laughs> maybe but i just i just think as well the other thing i'd say is that i'm not a big fan of comedy and novelty in royal rumbles i think i've made that pretty clear over the years and i think 
Uh, I am, well, as if anybody isn't, but I'm well and truly over Kofi Kingston. I mean, I don't, and, and you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm such a big fan of Kofi Kingston, the wrestler, and I hate that he's that he's basically just become the guy that does something weird at the Rumble. I hate that. I hate that for him. And then he might well yeah, yeah. say that, you know, that, that he's glad to have that claim to fame. But I just, it's so tired now. Like, it's become a Rumble yeah. trope, like, in itself. And I just find it, you know, I thought it was kind of cool that in the women's one, you know, they decided that they were going to have, you know, Naomi and Casey kind of be female equivalents to that. And I think, okay, that's kind of, you know, that was kind of something different because the women's Rumble is setting up its own set of tropes. So I think that's perfectly acceptable. But I just think, like, just enough with that and enough with, um, you know, mocking the Titus O'Neil greatest rumble thing. That was so self-conscious as just to be like ridiculous. Um, I've, I mean, I've, you know, I've no problem with a little bit of humor in Royal Rumble so long as it's consigned to a very brief appearance. And I didn't mind the Titus thing because, you know, they did it. They told, cause if they didn't do it, everyone would have been talking about, it. I didn't do it anyway. So, um, you know, fine. You know, you 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 did the gag and you got on with the rest of the match and fine. It's when it it overstays its welcome or it becomes too central to the match, like in 2012. Um, I think that the I agree with you entirely on on the Kofi thing. And furthermore, I'll say this as well. I thought that the commentary this year was, was oh abysmal. Oh my from, god! From from end to end, and it's like if you know, I don't understand what this whole guest commentary for having yeah. JBL and Jerry Lawler randomly call one match anyway. But if you're gonna do it, make sure you remind them that they're there to do a fucking job and not have fun time on the microphone with that shit banter that amuses <laughs> absolutely no one other than themselves. Yeah, it was. I think that's the thing is that I, I mean, Doc, right? You know, we're doing our series at the moment and. And a lot, like last last night, I, I watched. Um, I was saying about this on Twitter. I, I watched MVP be Chris Benoit from WrestleMania 23, and you know it's Michael Cole and JBL commentating. And the thing that stands out to you the most is it's actually good commentary. And you're like, oh, they were great yeah. back then. And it's they like, did. yeah. And you just think, because like, I t- you totally forget, don't you? Because all you remember now is you know JBL like you know like laughing at completely random times and talking about rugby and it's like what big match john and all that stuff yeah and and so and whoa, Lord... whoa, 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 whoa. big match greatest of all time john oh <laughs> let's not even begin with that but but I'm glad he wasn't in the rumble because that would have been very very annoying to have <laughs> jbl talking about big match john he's the greatest of all time <laughs> yeah exactly but i just but you know lawler lawler obviously you know outstayed his welcome many many years before they finally put him up to pasture so but the thing is as well is that if you're going to have these guest commentators why would you also keep the rest of the booth? Well, yeah. <laughs> so you still got Graves chiming in. You still got was Saxton on it as well? No, it was, it was just the four of them. Uh, just the four. Just the four of them. <laughs> quite, yeah. Um, but it was it just it infuriates me because they there and they treat it like a joke, and it's like it's not a joke. It's it's the it's one of it's it's one of the biggest and most important matches of the year, and one of the biggest and most important matches in the career of whoever's winning it. And you have a duty if you're going to be out there on commentary to make sure that that comes across and not sat there spending an hour telling you shitty jokes that absolutely nobody <laughs> finds funny apart from your bezzy mate. And even if your bezzy mate don't really find it funny, he's giving you sympathy laughs. Yeah, it's it, it's it's the real, you know, and I actually think that over the last couple of weeks, you know, for example, like, you know, the NXT UK takeover and, and even takeover Phoenix, you know, you can see that the commentary doesn't, 
you know, it doesn't have to be like that. It can be focused on the match, and I, it, it's it's um it's disappointing when they do when they do stuff like that. And I think you know, I've got it in mind. I don't know when I'm going to do this, but maybe in the next six weeks or so, you know, a sort of column thinking thinking about if 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 Triple H were to suddenly find that he was in charge tomorrow, what would the ten things that he'd need to do be? And and I think you know, one of them is definitely fix the commentary booth because it it, well, the, it has such a detrimental effect on the matches because i've seen good matches that i hated because the commentary made me hate them but the thing is you know i mean i'd, I'd be i'd be fueled with a little bit a little bit of hope about what triple h may do to the commentary if he ever takes over but the commentary on nxt is just as fucking awful well, the thing about NXT, though, I mean, it, say what you will about Mauro Ronaldo, but at least he's enthusiastic and focused on what's going on in the ring. It's not, you know, every quip, every little thing that he says that people may not particularly care for. It's centered on what's happening between the ropes. It's not focused on some, you know, bullshit squabble from a YouTube show that got canceled six years ago. <laughs> yeah, true. You know. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's not talking about things that are totally irrelevant to what's happening in the ring. You know, it's not talking about that time that Jerry Lawler crawled under the ring. I mean, it's not, you know, during the Royal Rumble. It's nothing. It's it's all focused on and is enthusiastic about and mirrors a lot of the enthusiasm that the fans have for the product that takes place in between the ropes in NXT. So, you know, what for if for all its criticisms, it's not. It's it, it may be. It may need to be toned down a bit, but at least it's, you know, at least it's just it's absolutely excitable in regards to what's happening. Nice. And that's I don't know how you guys even can make comments on commentary anymore, because for WWE shows, I, I can't remember a single thing about commentary well, from the weekend because I've tuned it out. I've just I, I don't know when I tuned it out, but I tuned it out a long time ago. So it takes something it, um, particularly bad. For uh, me, for the, for, yeah, for the—I mean, I'd say that for the for the most part, I'm the same. I only ever comment on it when, like, I only ever notice it when it becomes so appalling that it's intrusive, um, and uh, which sadly is, is frequently, frequently, frequently is. Yeah, yeah, quite. And I and on the NXT point, I mean, it's great that it's enthusiastic about what's going on in the ring, but ultimately, if I'm sat there thinking, "Man, this commentary is awful," then you know something's gone wrong because I shouldn't be sat there thinking about the commentary at all. I mean, I'm fine with the NXT commentary personally. I, I, I you know, I enjoy, no, no, I, I enjoy McGuinness. I enjoy. It's appalling. I mean, I don't mind. I don't. I never <laughs> minded Mauro, and I mean, but I have to say, Vic Joseph to me, I think is is brilliant. I think he, you know, if he was, you know, I think him and Phillips, like I actually really enjoy. So as long as you, it, yeah, there is hope. This thing is, it's so awful to be sat here, you know, realizing that that most of your hope is for when. It, when or if Vince decides the XFL is more important to him than WWE, because it's so much of this is bound up in in the Kevin Dunn, Vince McMahon dictatorship of of what they think the production needs to be, and that's that's really why it's like the way it is. Because that's the thing is you you listen to old Michael Cole, um, or, or, or even old JBL, or even old Jerry Lawler, it, it wasn't always as bad as that. And, and frequently it was quite good. So it's all about how it's produced, I guess. Vic Joseph is good, but he has this annoying habit of always, every. it feels like every five minutes saying, this is what 205 Live is all about. 
and it drives me back. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's 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 fair enough. Um, well, I feel like we're banging on about some of the the negative parts of the show. Yeah. Uh, all in all, personally, uh, I came away pretty damn satisfied as a fan after the Royal Rumble. There, I mean, this analytical parts aside, I think you know, big takeaway, just in case. You know, Triple H is, is listening as he did in the past to the right side of the pond. And maybe <laughs> still does currently, uh, no problem, no no issues with the way things went down in terms of, uh, you know, winners, right winners, right big picture stuff. Keep it going, keep it up, please. Yeah, that's and the I, thing. Is that and, yeah, and I would maintain that I can still name at least. 10 or 11 Royal Rumbles that were worse than the two we had on Sunday. And, you know, I think, I think the thing to take away is that I, you know, on, you know, having sat there and watched the five hours on Monday night, I didn't come away thinking that it was a particularly good show. But what I did come away thinking was I have hope for the road to WrestleMania. And really, when it comes down to it, that's all I wanted from the show is, is to be hopeful that we would get a road to WrestleMania where interesting things would happen and the right people would be in the right spot. And I did come away thinking that. So I think that is the important takeaway. Didn't live up to the to the potential on paper overall this show. But, you know, we need one of those years where we walk away from the Royal Rumble uh, feeling enthusiastic and optimistic about the future. And that, you know, that'll suffice for now. Yes, I think that's a good place to I think that they, they followed up the Royal Rumble with some good strong setup and some good strong TV for the for the top two angles for the two Rumble winners as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And also we got to hear Samoa Joe tell Jeff Hardy that he needs to act <laughs> like it's AA. So. And ask AJ how Wendy's doing. Yeah. So uh, I think I think more of shoot from the lips Samoa Joe in the next few weeks, and I'll be very happy. It, it still baffles me that he's that he's somehow gone this long without being a WWE champion. I mean, that would be the right kind of, um, you know, unexpected WWE swerve, wouldn't it, for Samoa Joe to only win a, win a title. Um, anyway, so, Doc, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a blast, as always. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Well, we'll have to try and get you back on again uh, on the road to WrestleMania, because, of course, as everyone knows, when it comes to WrestleMania, uh, nobody can talk about it quite like the Doc. So um, we'll definitely be having you back on if you're, uh, if you're amenable to that. Well, we'll uh, we'll put the we'll put the onus on WWE to see if that's a possibility. I will happily come back on if the road is exciting. Uh, if it's anything like it's been in recent years, then I will probably fade quietly into the background. Like, typical, like, typical bloody part time. Yeah, like when the payday comes. <laughs> like, like Homer Simpson going back into the hedge. Um, okay, well, uh, as always, Plant, thank you for uh, thank you for being uh, being here. Fine. <laughs> <You're welcome. laughs> and also, well, you know, Matt is not here to insult, so so I'll just uh, I'll pick on you and stuff. Um, yeah, we might find Mazza. We might find Mazza at some point. Um, we we've lost him in a travel lodge somewhere in provincial England, so you know he may he may turn up again at some point. You never know. But otherwise, Plan and I will be back. Sound like Alan Partridge. Mm, it's not a bad comparison, though, is it? <laughs> um, we, we will be back uh, next week, um, of course, until then, listen to the rest of LOP Radio's great shows um, all the way through the week. Um, and, of course, check out 
the columns on the main page to um, including minor plans, of course. And of course, uh, Doc, me and you have got a series going at the moment. So that is going up here as well, our uh, top 100 mid-card matches in WWE history. And also, just to plug as well, that we have a column writing tournament going on in LOP's columns forums at the minute that's well worth keeping an eye on. King of the Columnists 7. And I just posted my first round entry uh, this afternoon as a recording, which is Wednesday. There we go. I'm about to go as soon as we sign off. I'm going to go chop that to pieces once I'm done, because I'm a judge of this competition. There we go. Layeth the smacketh down. All right, so... <laughs> I'm going to burn it down, plan. I'm going to burn it down. <laughs> Excellent. Right, so for the right side of the ponds, until next week, we'll see you later. Bye.